Chapter Eleven of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Three, Part One, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mazarin's policy. Instead of the hesitation with which he had accosted the cardinal a quarter of an hour before, there might be read in the eyes of the young king that will against which a struggle might be maintained and which might be crushed by its own impotence, but which at least would preserve like a wound in the depths of the heart the remembrance of its defeat this time my lord cardinal we have to deal with something more easily found than a million do you think so sire said mazarin looking at the king with that penetrating eye which was accustomed to read the bottom of hearts yes i think so and when you know the object of my request and do you think i do not know it sire you know what remains for me to say to you listen sire these are king charles own words oh impossible listen and if that miserly beggarly italian said he my lord cardinal that is the sense if not the words eh good heavens i wish him no ill on that account one is biased by his passions he said to you if that vile italian refuses the million we ask of him sire if we are forced for want of money to renounce diplomacy well then we will ask him to grant us five hundred gentlemen the king started for the cardinal was only mistaken in the number is that not it sire cried the minister with a triumphant accent and then he added some fine words he said i have friends on the other side of the channel and these friends only want a leader and a banner when they see me when they behold the banner of france they would rally round me for they will comprehend that i have your support the colors of the french uniform will be worth as much to me as the million monsieur de mazarin refuses us for he was pretty well assured that i should refuse him that million i shall conquer with these five hundred gentlemen sire and all the honor will be yours now that is what he said or to that purpose was it not turning those plain words into brilliant metaphors and pompous images for they are fine talkers in that family the father talked even on the scaffold the perspiration of shame stood upon the brow of louis he felt that it was inconsistent with his dignity to hear his brother thus insulted but he did not yet know how to act with him to whom everyone yielded even his mother at last he made an effort but said he my lord cardinal it is not five hundred men it is only two hundred well uh, but you see i guessed what he wanted i never denied that you had a penetrating eye and that was why i thought you would not refuse my brother charles a thing so simple and so easy to grant him as what i ask of you in his name my lord cardinal or rather in my own sire said mazarin i have studied policy thirty years first under the auspices of monsieur le cardinal de richelieu and then alone this policy has not always been over honest it must be allowed but it has never been unskilful now that which is proposed to your majesty is dishonest and unskilful at the same time 
dishonest, monsieur. Sire, you entered into a treaty with Cromwell. Yes, and in that very treaty Cromwell signed his name above mine. Why did you sign yours so low down, sire? Cromwell found a good place, and he took it. That was his custom. I return, then, to Monsieur Cromwell. You have a treaty with him, that is to say, with England. Since when you signed that treaty, Monsieur Cromwell was England. Monsieur Cromwell is dead. Do you think so, sire? No doubt he is, since his son Richard has succeeded him and has abdicated. Yes, that is it exactly. Richard inherited after the death of his father, and England at the abdication of Richard. The treaty formed part of the inheritance. Whether in the hands of Monsieur Richard or in the hands of England, the treaty is then still as good as valid as ever. Why should you evade it, sire? What is changed? Charles wants today what we were not willing to grant him ten years ago. But that was foreseen and provided against. You are the ally of England, sire, and not of Charles the Second. It was doubtless wrong, from a family point of view, to sign a treaty with a man who had cut off the head of the king, your father's brother-in-law, and to contract an alliance with a parliament, which they call yonder the Rump Parliament. It was unbecoming, I acknowledge, but it was not unskillful from a political point of view, since, thanks to that treaty, I saved your majesty, then a minor, the trouble and the danger of a foreign war, which the Fronde, you remember the Fronde, sire, the young king hung his head, which the Fronde might have fatally complicated, and thus I prove to your majesty that to change our plan now, without warning our allies, would be at once unskilful and dishonest. We should make a war with the aggression on our side. We should make it deserving to have it made against us, and we should have the appearance of fearing it whilst provoking it for a permission granted to five hundred men, to two hundred men, to fifty men, to ten men is still a permission. One Frenchman, that is the nation. One uniform, that is the army. Suppose, sire, for example, that sooner or later you should have a war with Holland, which sooner or later will certainly happen, or with Spain, which will perhaps ensue if your marriage fails. Mazarin stole a furtive glance at the king. And there are a thousand causes that might make your marriage fail. Well, would you approve of England sending to the United Provinces, or to Spain a regiment, a company, a squadron even, of English gentlemen? Would you think that they kept within the limits of their treaty of alliance? Louis listened. It seemed so strange to him that Mazarin should invoke good faith, and he the author of so many political tricks, called Mazarinades. And yet said the king without any manifest authorization i cannot prevent gentlemen of my states from passing over into england if such should be their good pleasure you should compel them to return sire or at least protest against their presence as enemies in an allied country 
but come my lord cardinal you who are so profound a genius try if you cannot find means to assist this poor king without compromising ourselves and that is exactly what i am not willing to do my dear sire said mazarin if england were to act exactly according to my wishes she could not act better than she does if i directed the policy of england from this place i should not direct it otherwise governed as she is governed england is an eternal nest of contention for all europe holland protects charles the second let holland do so they will quarrel they will fight they are the only two maritime powers let them destroy each other's navies we can construct ours with the wrecks of their vessels when we shall save our money to buy nails how paltry and mean is all this that you are telling me monsieur le cardinal yes but nevertheless it is true sire you must confess that still further suppose i admit for a moment the possibility of breaking your word and evading the treaty such a thing sometimes happens but that is when some great interest is to be promoted by it or when the treaty is found to be too troublesome well you will authorize the engagement asked of you france her banner which is the same thing will cross the straits and will fight france will be conquered why so ma foi we have a pretty general to fight under this charles the second webster gave us good proofs of that but he will no longer have to deal with cromwell monsieur but he will have to deal with monk who is quite as dangerous the brave brewer of whom we are speaking was a visionary he had moments of exaltation of inflation during which he ran over like an overfilled cask and from the chinks there always escaped some drops of his thoughts and by the sample of the whole his thoughts were to be made out cromwell has thus allowed us more than ten times to penetrate into his very soul when one would have conceived that soul to be enveloped in the triple brass as horace has it but a monk oh sire god defend you from ever having anything to transact politically with a monk it is he who has given me in one year all the gray hairs i have monk is no fanatic unfortunately he is a politician he does not overflow he keeps close together for ten years he has had his eyes fixed upon one object and nobody has yet been able to ascertain what every morning as louis the eleventh advised he burns his nightcap therefore on the day when this plan slowly and solitarily ripened shall break forth it will break forth with all the conditions of success which always accompany an unforeseen event that is monk sire of whom perhaps you have never heard of whom perhaps you did not even know the name before your brother charles the second who knows what he is pronounced it before you he is a marvel of depth and tenacity the two only things against which intelligence and ardor are blunted sire i had ardor when i was young i was always intelligent 
I may safely boast of it, because I am approached with it. I have done very well with these two qualities, since from the son of a fisherman of Pecina I have become prime minister to the king of France. And in that position, your majesty will perhaps acknowledge, I have rendered some service to the throne of your majesty. Well, sire, if I had met with a monk on my way, instead of Monsieur de Beaufort, Monsieur de Retz, or Monsieur le Prince, well, we should have been ruined. If you engage yourself rashly, sire, you will fall into the talons of this politic soldier. The cask of a monk, sire, is an iron coffer, in the recesses of which he shuts up his thoughts, and no one has the key of it. Therefore, near him, or rather before him, I bow, sire, for I have nothing but a velvet cap. What do you think Monk wishes to do, then? Eh, sire, if I knew that, I would not tell you to mistrust him, for I should be stronger than he. But with him I am afraid to guess. To guess? You understand my word? For, if I thought I had guessed, I should stop at an idea, and, in spite of myself, should pursue that idea. Since that man has been in power yonder, I am like one of the damned in Dante, whose neck Satan has twisted, and who walk forward, looking behind them. I am travelling towards Madrid, but I never lose sight of London. Do guess with that devil of a man is to deceive oneself, and to deceive oneself is to ruin oneself. God keep me from ever seeking to guess what he aims at. I confine myself to watching what he does, and that is well enough. Now, I believe you observe the meaning of the word, I believe. I believe, with respect to monk, ties one to nothing. I believe that he has a strong inclination to succeed Cromwell. Your Charles the Second has already caused proposals to be made to him by ten persons. He has satisfied himself with driving these ten meddlers from his presence without saying anything to them, but begone or I will have you hung. That man is a sepulchre. At this moment... A monk is affecting devotion to the rump parliament. Of this devotion, observe, I am not the dupe. Monk has no wish to be assassinated. An assassination would stop him in the midst of his operations, and his work must be accomplished. So, I believe. But do not believe what I believe, sire, for I say I believe from habit. I believe that the monk is keeping on friendly terms with the Parliament till the day comes for dispersing with it. You are asked for swords, but they are to fight against the monk. God preserve you from fighting against the monk, sire, for monk would beat us, and I should never console myself after being beaten by monk. I should say to myself, monk has foreseen that victory ten years. For God's sake, sire, out of friendship for you, if not out of consideration for himself, let Charles the Second keep quiet. Your Majesty will give him a little income here. Give him one of your chateaux. Yes, yes, uh, wait a while, uh, but I forgot the treaty. 
that the famous treaty of which we were just now speaking your majesty has not even the right to give him a chateau how is that yes yes your majesty is bound not to grant hospitality to king charles and to compel him to leave france even it was on this account we forced him to quit you and yet here he is again sire i hope you will give your brother to understand that he cannot remain with us that it is impossible that he should be allowed to compromise us or i myself enough my lord said louis the fourteenth rising in refusing me a million perhaps you may be right your millions are your own in refusing me two hundred gentlemen you are still further in the right for you are prime minister and you have in the eyes of france the responsibility of peace and war but that you should pretend to prevent me who am king from extending my hospitality to the grandson of henry the fourth to my cousin german to the companion of my childhood there your power stops and there begins my will sire said mazarin delighted at being let off so cheaply and who had besides only fought so earnestly to arrive at that sire i shall always bend before the wheel of my king let my king then keep near him or in one of his chateaux the king of england let mazarin know it but let not the minister know it good night my lord said louis the fourteenth i go away in despair but convinced and that is all i desire sire replied mazarin the king made no answer and retired quite pensive convinced not of all mazarin had told him but of one thing which he took care not to mention to him and that was that it was necessary for him to study seriously both his own affairs and those of europe for he found them very difficult and very obscure louis found the king of england seated in the same place where he had left him on perceiving him the english prince arose but at the first glance he saw discouragement written in dark letters upon his cousin's brow then speaking first as if to facilitate the painful avowal that louis had to make to him whatever it may be said he i shall never forget all the kindness all the friendship you have exhibited toward me alas replied louis in a melancholy tone only barren good will my brother charles the second became extremely pale he passed his cold hand over his brow and struggled for a few instants against a faintness that made him tremble i understand said he at last no more hope louis seized the hand of charles the second wait my brother said he precipitate nothing everything may change hasty resolutions ruin all causes add another year of trial i implore you to the years you have already undergone you have to induce you to act now rather than at another time neither occasion nor opportunity come with me my brother i will give you one of my residences whichever you prefer to inhabit i with you will keep eyes upon events we will prepare come then my brother have courage charles the second withdrew his hand from that of the king and drawing back to salute him with more ceremony 
with all my heart thanks replied he sire but i have prayed without success to the greatest king on earth now i will go and ask a miracle of god and he went out without being willing to hear any more his head carried loftily his hand trembling with a painful contraction of his noble countenance and that profound gloom which finding no more hope in the world of men appeared to go beyond it and asked it in worlds unknown the officer of musketeers on seeing him pass by thus pale bowed almost to his knees as he saluted him he then took a flambeau called two musketeers and descended the deserted staircase with the unfortunate king holding in his left hand his hat the plume of which swept the steps arrived at the door the musketeer asked the king which way he was going that he might direct the musketeers monsieur replied charles the second in a subdued voice you who have known my father say did you ever pray for him if you have done so do not forget me in your prayers now i am going alone and i beg of you not to accompany me or have me accompanied any further the officer bowed and sent away the musketeers into the interior of the palace but he himself remained an instant under the porch watching the departing charles the second till he was lost in the turn of the next street to him as to his father formerly murmured he athos if he were here would say with reason salute fallen majesty then reascending the staircase oh the vile service that i follow said he at every step oh my pitiful master life thus carried on is no longer tolerable and it is at length time that i should do something no more generosity no more energy the master has succeeded the pupil is starved for ever my dear i will not resist come you men continued he entering the antechamber why are you all looking at me so extinguish these torches and return to your posts ah you are guarding me yes you watch over me do you not worthy fellows brave fools i am not the duke de guise be gone they will not assassinate me in the little passage besides added he in a low voice that would be a resolution and no resolutions have been formed since monsieur le cardinal de richelieu died now with all his faults that was a man it is settled Tomorrow I will throw my cassock to the nettles. Then, reflecting, No, said he, not yet. I have one great trial to make, and I will make it. But that, and I swear it, shall be the last. Mordieu! He had not finished speaking when a voice issued from the king's chamber. Monsieur le lieutenant, said this voice. Here I am, replied he the king desires to speak to you <laughs> said the lieutenant perhaps of what i was thinking about and he went into the king's apartment end of chapter eleven recording by john van stan savannah georgia
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 12 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 3, Part 1, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King and the Lieutenant As soon as the king saw the officer enter, he dismissed his valet de chambre and his gentleman. "'Who is on duty tomorrow, monsieur?' asked he. The lieutenant bowed his head with military politeness and replied, "'I am, sire.' "'What?' still you always i sire how can that be monsieur sire when traveling the musketeers supply all the posts of your majesty's household that is to say yours her majesty the queen's and monsieur le cardinal's the latter of whom borrows of the king the best part or rather the most numerous part of the royal guard but in the interims there are no interims, sire, but for twenty or thirty men who rest out of a hundred and twenty. At the Louvre it is very different, and if I were at the Louvre I should rely upon my brigadier. But when traveling, sire, no one knows what may happen, and I prefer doing my duty myself. Then you are on guard every day? And every night. Yes, sire. Monsieur, I cannot allow that. I will have you rest. That is very kind, sire, but I will not. What do you say? said the king, who did not at first comprehend the full meaning of this reply. I say, sire, that I will not expose myself to the chance of a fault. If the devil had a trick to play on me, you understand, sire, as he knows the man with whom he has to deal, he would choose the moment when I should not be there. My duty and the peace of my conscience before everything, sire. But such duty will kill you, monsieur. Eh, sire, I have performed it for thirty years, and in all France and Navarre there is not a man in better health than I am. Moreover, I entreat you, sire, not to trouble yourself about me. That would appear very strange to me, seeing that I am not accustomed to it. The king cut short the conversation by a fresh question. "'Shall you be here, then, to-morrow morning?' "'As at present, yes, sire.' The king walked several times up and down his chamber. It was very plain that he burned with a desire to speak, but that he was restrained by some fear or other. The lieutenant, standing motionless, hat in hand, watched him making these evolutions, and whilst looking at him grumbled to himself, biting his moustache. "'He has not half a crown worth of resolution.' I would lay a wager he does not speak at all. The king continued to walk about, casting from time to time a side glance at the lieutenant. He is the very image of the father, continued the latter in his secret soliloquy. He is at once proud, avaricious, and timid. The devil take this master, say I. The king stopped. Lieutenant, said he, I am here, sire. Why did you cry out this evening, down below in the salons? 
the king's service his majesty's musketeers because you gave me the order sire i yourself indeed i did not say a word monsieur sire an order is given by a sign by a gesture by a glance as intelligibly as freely and as clearly as by word of mouth a servant who has nothing but ears is not half a good servant your eyes are very penetrating then monsieur how is that sire because they see what is not my eyes are good though sire although they have served their master long and much when they have anything to see they seldom miss the opportunity now this evening they saw that your majesty colored with endeavoring to conceal the inclination to yawn that your majesty looked with eloquent supplications first at his eminence and then at her majesty the queen mother and at length to the entrance door and they so thoroughly remarked all i have said that they saw your majesty's lips articulate these words who will get me out of this monsieur or something to this effect sire my musketeers i could then no longer hesitate that look was for me the order was for me i cried out instantly his majesty's musketeers and besides that was shown to be true sire not only by your majesty's not saying i was wrong but proving i was right by going out at once the king turned away to smile then after a few seconds he again fixed his limpid eye upon that countenance so intelligent so bold and so firm that it might have been said to be the proud and energetic profile of the eagle facing the sun that is all very well said he after a short silence during which he endeavored in vain to make his officer lower his eyes but seeing the king said no more the latter pirouetted on his heels and took three steps toward the door muttering he will not speak mordieu he will not speak thank you monsieur said the king at last <laughs> continued the lieutenant there was only wanting that blamed for having been less of a fool than another might have been and he went to the door allowing his spurs to jingle in true military style but when he was on the threshold feeling that the king's desire drew him back he returned has your majesty told me all asked he in a tone we cannot describe but which without appearing to solicit the royal confidence contained so much persuasive frankness that the king immediately replied yes but draw near monsieur now then murmured the officer he is coming to it at last listen to me i shall not lose a word sire you will mount on horseback to-morrow at about half-past four in the morning and you will have a horse saddled for me from your majesty's stables no one of your musketeers horses very well sire is that all and you will accompany me alone alone shall i come to seek your majesty or shall i wait you will wait for me where sire at the little park gate the lieutenant bowed understanding that the king had told him all he had to say in fact the king dismissed him with a gracious wave of the hand the officer left the chamber of the king and returned to place himself philosophically in his fauteuil where far from sleeping as might have been expected considering how late it was 
he began to reflect more deeply than he had ever reflected before. The result of these reflections was not so melancholy as the preceding ones had been. "'Come, he has begun,' said he. "'Love urges him on, and he goes forward. "'He goes forward. "'The king is nobody in his own palace, "'but the man, perhaps, may prove to be worth something. "'Well, we shall see tomorrow morning. "'Oh, oh!' cried he, all at once starting up. "'That is a gigantic idea, mordieu! "'And perhaps my fortune depends, at least, upon that idea.' After this exclamation, the officer arose and marched with his hands in the pockets of his justicor, about the immense antechamber that served him as an apartment. The wax-light flamed furiously under the effects of a fresh breeze, which stole in through the chinks of the door and the window, and cut the salle diagonally. It threw out a reddish, unequal light, sometimes brilliant, sometimes dull, and the tall shadow of the lieutenant was seen marching on the wall, in profile, like a figure by Callot, with his long sword and feathered hat. "'Certainly,' said he, "'I am mistaken if Mazarin is not laying a snare for this amorous boy. Mazarin this evening gave an address, and made an appointment as complacently as Monsieur Dango himself could have done. I heard him, and I know the meaning of his words. "'Tomorrow morning,' said he, "'they will pass opposite the Bridge of Blois. "'Mordieu!' That is clear enough, and particularly for a lover. And that is the cause of this embarrassment. That is the cause of this hesitation. That is the cause of this order. Monsieur le lieutenant of my musketeers, be on horseback tomorrow at four o'clock in the morning. Which is as clear as if he had said, Monsieur the lieutenant of my musketeers, tomorrow at four at the bridge of Blois. Do you understand? Here is a state secret, then, which I, humble as I am, have in my possession while it is in action and how do i get it because i have good eyes as his majesty just now said they say he loves this little italian doll furiously they say he threw himself at his mother's feet to beg her to allow him to marry her they say the queen went so far as to consult the court of rome whether such a marriage contracted against her will would be valid oh if i were but twenty-five if I had by my side those I no longer have, if I did not despise the whole world most profoundly, I would embroil Mazarin with the Queen Mother, France with Spain. I would make a queen after my own fashion. But let that pass. And the lieutenant snapped his fingers in disdain. This miserable Italian, this poor creature, this sordid wretch, who has just refused the King of England a million, would not perhaps give a thousand pistoles for the news I could carry him. Mordieu! I am falling into second childhood. I am becoming stupid indeed. The idea of Mazarin giving anything. <laughs> and he laughed in a subdued voice. Well, let us go to sleep. Let us go to sleep, and the sooner the better. My mind is wearied with my evening's work, and will see things tomorrow more clearly than today and upon this recommendation, made to himself, he folded his cloak around him, looking with contempt upon his royal neighbor. Five minutes after this he was asleep, with his hands clenched and his lips apart, giving escape not to his secret, but to a sonorous sound, which rose and spread freely beneath the majestic roof of the antechamber. End of chapter 12 
Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 13 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 3, Part 1, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary de Mancini The sun had scarcely shed its first beams on the majestic trees of the park and the lofty turrets of the castle, when the young king, who had been awake more than two hours, possessed by the sleeplessness of love, opened his shutters himself and cast an inquiring look into the courts of the sleeping palace. He saw that it was the hour agreed upon. The great court clock pointed to a quarter past four. He did not disturb his valet de chambre, who was sleeping soundly at some distance. He dressed himself, and the valet in a great fright sprang up, thinking he had been deficient in his duty. But the king sent him back again, commanding him to preserve the most absolute silence. He then descended the little staircase, went out a lateral door, and perceived at the end of the wall a mounted horseman holding another horse by the bridle. This horseman could be recognized in his cloak and slouched hat. As to the horse, saddled like that of a rich citizen, it offered nothing remarkable to the experienced eye. Louis took the bridle. The officer held the stirrup without dismounting and asked His Majesty's orders in a low voice. "'Follow me,' replied the king. The officer put his horse to the trot, behind that of his master, and they descended the hill toward the bridge. When they reached the other side of the Loire, "'Monsieur,' said the king, "'you will please to ride on till you see a carriage coming. Then return and inform me. I will wait here.' "'Will your majesty deign to give me some description of the carriage I am charged to discover?' "'A carriage in which you will see two ladies, and probably their attendants likewise.' "'Sire, I should not wish to make a mistake. "'Is there no other sign by which I may know this carriage?' "'It will bear, in all probability, the arms of Monsieur le Cardinal.' "'That is sufficient, sire,' replied the officer, "'fully instructed in the object of his search. "'He put his horse to the trot, "'and rode sharply on in the direction pointed out by the king. "'But he had scarcely gone five hundred paces "'when he saw four mules and then a carriage,' loom up from behind a little hill behind this carriage came another it required only one glance to assure him that these were the equipages he was in search of he therefore turned his bridle and rode back to the king sire said he here are your carriages the first as you said contains two ladies with their femme de chambre the second contains the footmen provisions and necessaries that is well replied the king in an agitated voice please to go and tell those ladies that a cavalier of the court wishes to pay his respects to them alone the officer set off at a gallop mordieu said he as he rode on here is a new and an honourable employment i hope i complained of being nobody i am the king's confidant that is enough to make a musketeer burst with pride he approached the carriage and delivered his message gallantly and intelligently. There were two ladies in the carriage, one of great beauty, although rather thin, and the other less favored by nature, but lively, graceful, and uniting in the delicate lines of her brow all the signs of a strong will. Her eyes, animated and piercing in particular, spoke more eloquently than all the amorous phrases in fashion in those days of gallantry. It was to her D'Artagnan addressed himself, without fear of being mistaken, 
although the other was, as we have said, the more handsome of the two. Madame, said he, I am the lieutenant of the musketeers, and there is on the road a horseman who awaits you, and is desirous of paying his respects to you. At these words, the effect of which he watched closely, the lady with the black eyes uttered a cry of joy, leant out of the carriage window, and seeing the cavalier approaching, held out her arms, exclaiming, Ah, my dear sire! And the tears gushed from her eyes. The coachman stopped his team, the women rose in confusion from the back of the carriage, and the second lady made a slight curtsy, terminated by the most ironical smile that jealousy ever imparted to the lips of woman. "'Marie, dear Marie,' cried the king, taking the hand of the black-eyed lady in both his, and opening the heavy door himself, he drew her out of the carriage with so much ardor that she was in his arms before she touched the ground. The lieutenant, posted on the other side of the carriage, saw and heard all without being observed. The king offered his arm to Mademoiselle de Mancini, and made a sign to the coachman and lackeys to proceed. It was nearly six o'clock. The road was fresh and pleasant. Tall trees with their foliage still enclosed in the golden down of their buds let the dew of morning filter from their trembling branches, like liquid diamonds. The grass was bursting at the foot of the hedges. The swallows— having returned since only a few days, described their graceful curves between the heavens and the water. A breeze, laden with the perfumes of the blossoming woods, sighed along the road and wrinkled the surface of the waters of the river. All these beauties of the day, all these perfumes of the plants, all these aspirations of the earth towards heaven intoxicated the two lovers, walking side by side, leaning upon each other, eyes fixed upon eyes hand clasping hand, and who, lingering as by a common desire, did not dare to speak, they had so much to say. The officer saw that the king's horse, in wandering this way and that, annoyed Mademoiselle de Mancini. He took advantage of the pretext of securing the horse to draw near them, and dismounting, walked between the two horses he led. He did not lose a single word or gesture of the lovers. It was Mademoiselle de Mancini who at length began. Ah! Oh my dear sire she said you do not abandon me then no marie replied the king you see i do not i had so often been told though that as soon as we should be separated you would no longer think of me dear marie is it then to-day only that you have discovered we are surrounded by people interested in deceiving us but then sire this journey this alliance with Spain. They are going to marry you off. Louis hung his head. At the same time, the officer could see the eyes of Marie de Mancini shine in the sun with the brilliancy of a dagger starting from its sheath. And you have done nothing in favor of our love? asked the girl after a silence of a moment. Oh, mademoiselle, how could you believe that? I threw myself at the feet of my mother. I begged her. I implored her. I told her all my hopes of happiness were in you. I even threatened. Well? asked Marie eagerly. Well, the Queen Mother wrote to the court of Rome, and received as answer that a marriage between us would have no validity, and would be dissolved by the Holy Father. At length, finding there was no hope for us, I requested to have my marriage with the Infanta at least delayed. And yet 
that does not prevent your being on the road to meet her how can i help it to my prayers to my supplications to my tears i received no answer but reasons of state well 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 what is to be done mademoiselle when so many wills are leagued against me it was now marie's turn to hang her head then i must bid you adieu for ever said she you know that i am being exiled you know that i am going to be buried alive you know still more that they want to marry me off too louis became very pale and placed his hand upon his heart if i had thought that my life only had been at stake i have been so persecuted that i might have yielded but i thought yours was concerned my dear sire and i stood out for the sake of preserving your happiness oh yes my happiness my treasure murmured the king more gallantly than passionately perhaps the cardinal might have yielded said marie if you had addressed yourself to him if you had pressed him for the cardinal to call the king of france his nephew do you not perceive sire he would have made war even for that honor the cardinal assured of governing alone under the double pretext of having brought up the king and given his niece to him in marriage the cardinal would have fought all antagonists overcome all obstacles oh sire i can answer for that i am a woman and i see clearly into everything where love is concerned these words produced a strange effect upon the king instead of heightening his passion they cooled it he stopped and said hastily what is to be said mademoiselle everything has failed except your will i trust my dear sire alas said the king coloring have i a will oh said mademoiselle de mancini mournfully wounded by that expression the king has no will but that which policy dictates but that which reasons of state impose upon him oh it is because you have no love cried mary if you loved sire you would have a will on pronouncing these words mary raised her eyes to her lover whom she saw more pale and more cast down than an exile who is about to quit his native land forever accuse me murmured the king but do not say i do not love you a long silence followed these words which the young king had pronounced with a perfectly true and profound feeling i am unable to think that to-morrow and after to-morrow i shall see you no more i cannot think that i am going to end my sad days at a distance from paris that the lips of an old man of an unknown should touch that hand which you hold within yours no in truth i cannot think of all that my dear sire without having my poor heart burst with despair and marie de mancini did shed floods of tears on his part the king much affected carried his handkerchief to his mouth and stifled a sob see said she the carriages have stopped my sister waits for me the time has come what are you about to decide upon will be decided for life oh sire you are willing then that i should lose you you are willing then louis 
that she to whom you have said i love you should belong to another than to her king to her master to her lover oh courage louis courage one word a single word say i will and all my life is enchained to yours and all my heart is yours for ever the king made no reply mary then looked at him as dido looked at aeneas in the elysian fields fierce and disdainful farewell then said she farewell life love heaven and she took a step away the king detained her seized her hand which he pressed to his lips and despair prevailing over the resolution he appeared to have inwardly formed he let fall upon that beautiful hand a burning tear of regret which made mary start so really had that tear burnt her she saw the humid eyes of the king his pale brow his convulsed lips and cried with an accent that cannot be described oh sire you are a king you weep and yet i depart as his sole reply the king hid his face in his handkerchief the officer uttered something so like a roar that it frightened the horses mademoiselle de mancini quite indignant quitted the king's arm hastily entered the carriage crying to the coachman go on go on and quick the coachman obeyed flogged his mules and the heavy carriage rocked upon its creaking axle whilst the king of france alone cast down annihilated did not dare to look either behind or before him end of chapter thirteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter fourteen of the d'artagnan romances volume three part one by alexander dumas translated by william robson this librivox recording is in the public domain in which the king and the lieutenant each give proofs of memory when the king like all the people in the world who are in love had long and attentively watched disappear in the distance the carriage which bore away his mistress when he had turned and turned again a hundred times to the same side and had at length succeeded in somewhat calming the agitation of his heart and thoughts he recollected that he was not alone the officer still held the horse by the bridle and had not lost all hope of seeing the king recover his resolution he had still the resource of mounting and riding after the carriage they would have lost nothing by waiting a little but the imagination of the lieutenant of the musketeers was too rich and too brilliant it left far behind it that of the king who took care not to allow himself to be carried away to any such excess he contented himself with approaching the officer and in a doleful voice come said he let us be gone all is ended to horse the officer imitated this carriage this slowness this sadness and leisurely mounted his horse the king pushed on sharply the lieutenant followed him at the bridge louis turned around for the last time the lieutenant patient as a god who has eternity behind and before him still hoped for a return of energy but it was groundless nothing appeared louis gained the street which led to the castle and entered as seven was striking when the king had returned and the musketeer who saw everything had seen a corner of the tapestry over the cardinal's window lifted up he breathed a profound sigh 
like a man unloosed from the tightest bounds, and said in a low voice, "'Now then, my officer, I hope that it is over.' The king summoned his gentlemen. "'Please to understand I shall receive nobody before two o'clock,' said he. "'Sire,' replied the gentleman, "'there is, however, someone who requests admittance.' "'Who is that?' "'Your lieutenant of musketeers.' "'He who accompanied me?' "'Yes, sire.' "'Ah,' said the king, "'let him come in.' The officer entered. The king made a sign, and the gentleman and the valet retired. Louis followed them with his eyes until they had shut the door, and when the tapestries had fallen behind them. "'You remind me by your presence, monsieur,' of something i had forgotten to recommend to you that is to say the most absolute discretion oh sire why does your majesty give yourself the trouble of making me such a recommendation it is plain you don't know me yes monsieur that is true i know that you are discreet but as i had prescribed nothing the officer bowed has your majesty nothing else to say to me no monsieur you may retire shall i obtain permission not to do so till i have spoken to the king sire what have you to say to me explain yourself monsieur sire a thing without importance to you but which interests me greatly pardon me then for speaking of it without urgency without necessity i never would have done it and i would have disappeared mute and insignificant as i always have been how disappeared i do not understand you monsieur sire in a word said the officer i am come to ask for my discharge from your majesty's service the king made a movement of surprise but the officer remained as motionless as a statue your discharge yours monsieur and for how long a time i pray why forever sire what you are desirous of quitting my service monsieur said louis with an expression that revealed something more than surprise sire i regret to say that i am impossible it is so however sire i am getting old i have worn harness now thirty-five years my poor shoulders are tired i feel that i must give place to the young i don't belong to this age i have still one foot in the old one it results that everything is strange to my eyes everything astonishes and bewilders me in short i have the honor to ask your majesty for my discharge monsieur said the king looking at the officer who wore his uniform with an ease that would have caused envy in a young man you are stronger and more vigorous than i am oh replied the officer with an air of false modesty your majesty says so because i still have a good eye and a tolerably firm foot because i can still ride a horse and my mustache is black but sire vanity of vanities all that illusions all that appearance smoke sire i have still a youthful air it is true but i feel old and within six months i am certain i shall be broken down gouty impotent therefore then sire monsieur 
interrupted the king. "'Remember your words of yesterday. You said to me in this very place where you are now that you were endowed with the best health of any man in France, that fatigue was unknown to you, that you did not mind spending whole days and nights at your post. Did you tell me that, monsieur, or not? Try and recall, monsieur.' The officer sighed. "'Sire,' said he, "'old age is boastful and it is pardonable for old men to praise themselves when others no longer do it it is very possible i said that but the fact is sire i'm very much fatigued and request permission to retire monsieur said the king advancing toward the officer with a gesture full of majesty you are not assigning me the true reason you wish to quit my service it may be true but you disguise from me the motive of your retreat. Sire, believe that. I believe what I see, monsieur. I see a vigorous, energetic man, full of presence of mind, the best soldier in France, perhaps. And this personage cannot persuade me the least in the world that you stand in need of rest. Ah, sire, said the lieutenant with bitterness. What praise! indeed your majesty confounds me energetic vigorous brave intelligent the best soldier in the army but sire your majesty exaggerates my small portion of merit to such a point that however good an opinion i may have of myself i do not recognize myself in truth i do not if i were vain enough to believe only half of your majesty's words i should consider myself a valuable indispensable man I should say that a servant possessed of such brilliant qualities was a treasure beyond all price. Now, sire, I have been all my life, I feel bound to say it, except at the present time, appreciated, in my opinion, much below my value. I therefore repeat, your majesty exaggerates. The king knitted his brow, for he saw a bitter raillery beneath the words of the officer. "'Come, monsieur,' said he. "'Let us meet the question frankly. "'Are you dissatisfied with my service? "'Say. "'No evasions. "'Speak boldly, frankly. "'I command you to do so.' "'The officer, who had been twisting his hat about in his hands, "'with an embarrassed air, for several minutes, "'raised his head at these words. "'Oh, sire,' said he, "'that puts me a little more at my ease.' to a question put so frankly i will reply frankly to tell the truth is a good thing as much from the pleasure one feels in relieving one's heart as on the count of the rarity of the fact i will speak the truth then to my king at the same time imploring him to excuse the frankness of an old soldier louis looked at his officer with anxiety which he manifested by the agitation of his gesture well then speak said he for I am impatient to hear the truths you have to tell me. The officer threw his hat upon a table, and his countenance, always so intelligent and martial, assumed all at once a strange character of grandeur and solemnity. Sire, said he, I quit the king's service because I am dissatisfied. The valet in these times can approach his master as respectfully as I do, can give him an account of his labor, bring back his tools, return the funds that have been entrusted to him, and say, Master, my day's work is done. 
pay me if you please and let us part monsieur monsieur exclaimed the king crimson with rage ah sire replied the officer bending his knee for a moment never was a servant more respectful than i am before your majesty only you commanded me to tell the truth now i have begun to tell it it must come out even if you command me to hold my tongue there was so much resolution expressed in the deep-sunk muscles of the officer's countenance that louis the fourteenth had no occasion to tell him to continue he continued therefore whilst the king looked at him with a curiosity mingled with admiration sire i have as i have said now served the house of france thirty-five years few people have worn out so many swords in that service as i have and the swords i speak of were good swords too sire i was a boy ignorant of everything except courage when the king your father guessed that there was a man in me i was a man sire when the cardinal de richelieu who was a judge of manhood discovered an enemy in me sire the history of that enmity between the ant and the lion may be read from the first to the last line in the secret archives of your family if ever you feel an inclination to know it do so sire the history is worth the trouble it is i who tell you so you will there read that the lion fatigued harassed out of breath at length cried for quarter and the justice must be rendered to him to say that he gave as much as he required oh those were glorious times sire strewed over with battles like one of tasso's or ariosto's epics the wonders of those times to which the people of ours would refuse belief were everyday occurrences for five years together i was a hero every day at least so i was told by persons of judgment and that is a long period for heroism trust me sire a period of five years nevertheless i have faith in what these people told me for they were good judges they were named monsieur de richelieu monsieur de buckingham monsieur de beaufort monsieur de retz a mighty genius himself in street warfare in short the king louis the thirteenth and even the queen your noble mother who one day condescended to say thank you i don't know what service i had had the good fortune to render her and pardon me sire for speaking so boldly but what i relate to you as i have already had the honor to tell your majesty is history the king bit his lips and threw himself violently on a chair i appear importunate to your majesty said the lieutenant eh, sire that is the fate of truth she is a stern companion she bristles all over with steel she wounds those whom she attacks and sometimes him who speaks her no monsieur replied the king i bade you speak speak then after the service of the king and the cardinal came the service of the regency sire i fought pretty well in the fronde much less though than the first time the men began to diminish in stature i have nevertheless led your majesty's musketeers on some perilous occasions which stand upon the orders of the day of the company mine was a beautiful luck at that time i was the favorite of monsieur de mazarin lieutenant here lieutenant there lieutenant to the right lieutenant to the left there was not a buffet dealt in france of which your humble servant did not have the dealing but soon france was not enough 
The cardinal sent me to England on Cromwell's account, another gentleman who was not over-gentle, I assure you, sire. I had the honor of knowing him, and I was well able to appreciate him. A great deal was promised me on account of that mission, so as I did much more than I had been bidden to do, I was generously paid, for I was at length appointed captain of the musketeers, that is to say, the most envied position in court, which takes precedent over the marshals of France, and justly, for who says captain of the musketeers, says the flower of chivalry and king of the brave. Captain, monsieur, interrupted the king, you make a mistake. Lieutenant, you mean. Not at all, sire. I made no mistake. Your majesty may rely upon me in that respect. Monsieur le cardinal gave me the commission himself. Well? But, Monsieur de Mazarin, as you know better than anybody, does not often give, and sometimes takes back what he has given. He took it back again as soon as peace was made, and he was no longer in want of me. Certainly I was not worthy to replace Monsieur de Treville, of illustrious memory, but they had promised me, and they had given me. They ought to have stopped there. Is that what dissatisfies you, monsieur? Well, I shall make inquiries. I love justice, and your claim, though made in military fashion, does not displease me. Oh, sire, said the officer, your majesty has ill understood me. I no longer claim anything now. Excess of delicacy, monsieur, but I will keep my eye upon your affairs, and later— oh, Sire, what a word! Later! Thirty years I have lived upon that promising word, which has been pronounced by so many great personages, and which your mouth has in its turn just pronounced. Later! That is how I have received a score of wounds, and how I have received fifty-four years of age without ever having had a louis in my purse, and without ever having met with a protector on my way. I, who have protected so many people. So I change my formula, sire, and when anyone says to me, later, I reply, now. It is rest that I solicit, sire. That may be easily granted me. That will cost nobody anything. I did not look for this language, monsieur, particularly from a man who has always lived among the great. You will forget you are speaking to the king, to a gentleman who is, I suppose, of as good a house as yourself. When I say later, I mean a certainty. I do not at all doubt it, sire, but this is the end of the terrible truth I had to tell you. If I were to see upon that table a marshal's stick, the sword of constable, the crown of Poland instead of later, I swear to you, sire, that I should still say now. Oh, excuse me, sire. I am from the country of your grandfather, Henry the Fourth. I do not speak often, but when I do speak, I speak all. The future of my reign has little temptation for you, monsieur, it appears, said Louis haughtily. Forgetfulness, forgetfulness everywhere, cried the officer with a noble air. The master has forgotten the servant so that the servant is reduced to forget his master. I live in unfortunate times, sire. I see youth full of discouragement and fear. I see it timid and despoiled, when it ought to be rich and powerful. 
I yesterday evening, for example, opened the door to a king of England, whose father, humble as I am, I was near saving, if God had not been against me. God, who inspired his elect Cromwell, I open, I said, the door, that is to say, the palace of one brother to another brother, and I see, stop, sire, that is a load on my heart. I see the minister of that king drive away the proscribed prince and humiliate his master by condemning to want another king, his equal. Then I see my prince, who is young, handsome, and brave, who has courage in his heart and lightning in his eye. I see him tremble before a priest, who laughs at him behind the curtain of his alcove, where he digests all the gold of France, which he afterwards stuffs into secret coffers. Yes, I understand your look, sire. I am bold to madness, but what is to be said? I am an old man, and I tell you here, sire, to you, my king, things which I would cram down the throat of any one who should dare to pronounce them before me. You have commanded me to pour out the bottom of my heart before you, sire, and I cast at the feet of your majesty the pent-up indignation of thirty years, as I would pour out all my blood if your majesty commanded me to do so. The king, without speaking a word, wiped the drops of cold and abundant perspiration which trickled from his temples. The moment of silence which followed this vehement outbreak represented for him who had spoken, and for him who had listened, ages of suffering. Monsieur, said the king at length, you spoke the word forgetfulness, I have heard nothing but that word. I will reply then to it alone. Others have perhaps been able to forget, but I have not. And the proof is that I remember that one day of riot, that one day when the furious people, raging and roaring as the sea, invaded the royal palace, that one day when I feigned sleep in my bed, one man alone, naked sword in hand, concealed behind my curtain, watched over my life ready to risk his own for me, as he had risked before it twenty times for the lives of my family. Was not that gentleman, whose name I then demanded, called Monsieur d'Artagnan? Say, Monsieur. Your Majesty has a good memory, replied the officer coldly. You see, then, continued the king, if I have such remembrances of my childhood, what an amount I may gather in the age of reason. "'Your Majesty has been richly endowed by God,' said the officer in the same tone. "'Come, Monsieur d'Artagnan,' continued Louis with feverish agitation, "'ought you not to be as patient as I am? Ought you not to do as I do? Come!' "'And what do you do, sire?' "'I wait.' Your Majesty may do so because you are young, but I, sire, have not time to wait. Old age is at my door, and death is behind it, looking into the very depths of my house. Your Majesty is beginning life. Its future is full of hope and fortune, but I, sire, I am on the other side of the horizon, and we are so far from each other that I should never have time to wait till Your Majesty came up to me. Louis made another turn in his apartment, still wiping the moisture from his brow in a manner that would have terrified his physicians, 
if his physicians had witnessed the state his majesty was in it is very well monsieur said louis the fourteenth in a sharp voice you are desirous of having your discharge and you shall have it you offer me your resignation of the rank of lieutenant of the musketeers i deposit it humbly at your majesty's feet sire that is sufficient i will order your pension i shall have a thousand obligations to your majesty monsieur said the king with a violent effort i think you are losing a good master and i am sure of it sire shall you ever find such another oh sire i know that your majesty is alone in the world therefore will i never again take service with any king upon this earth and will never again have other master than myself you say so i swear so your majesty i shall remember that word monsieur d'artagnan bowed and you know i have a good memory said the king yes sire and yet i should desire that that memory should fail your majesty in this instant in order that you might forget all the miseries i have been forced to spread before your eyes your majesty is so much above the poor and the mean that i hope my majesty monsieur will act like the sun which looks upon all great and small rich and poor giving luster to some warmth to others and life to all adieu monsieur d'artagnan adieu you are free and the king with a hoarse sob which was lost in his throat passed quickly into the next room d'artagnan took up his hat from the table upon which he had thrown it and went out end of chapter fourteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Fifteen of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Three, Part One, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Proscribed. D'Artagnan had not reached the bottom of the staircase when the king called his gentleman. "I have a commission to give you, Monsieur," said he. "I am at your Majesty's commands." Wait then and the young king began to write the following letter which cost him more than one sigh although at the same time something like a feeling of triumph glittered in his eyes my lord cardinal thanks to your good counsels and above all thanks to your firmness i have succeeded in overcoming a weakness unworthy of a king you have too ably arranged my destiny to allow gratitude not to stop me at the moment when i was about to destroy your work i felt i was wrong to wish to make my life turn from the course you had marked out for it certainly it would have been a misfortune to france and my family if a misunderstanding had taken place between me and my minister this however would certainly have happened if i had made your niece my wife i am perfectly aware of this and will henceforth oppose nothing to the accomplishment of my destiny i am prepared then to wed the infanta maria teresa you may at once open the conference your affectionate louis the king after re-perusing the letter sealed it himself this letter is for my lord cardinal 
said he. The gentleman took it. At Mazarin's door he found Bernouin waiting with anxiety. "'Well?' asked the minister's valet de chambre. "'Monsieur,' said the gentleman, "'here is a letter for his eminence.' "'Ah, letter! Ah, we expected one after the little journey of the morning.' "'Oh, you know then that his majesty—' "'As first minister, it belongs to the duties of our charge to know everything.' and his majesty prays and implores i presume i don't know but he sighed frequently whilst he was writing yes 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 we understand all that people sigh sometimes from happiness as well as from grief monsieur and yet the king did not look very happy when he returned monsieur you did not see clearly besides you only saw his majesty on his return for he was only accompanied by the lieutenant of the guards but i had his eminence's telescope i looked through it when he was tired and i am sure they both wept well was it for happiness they wept no but for love and they vowed to each other a thousand tendernesses which the king asks no better than to keep now this letter is a beginning of the execution and what does his eminence think of this love which is by the by no secret to anybody bernouin took the gentleman by the arm and whilst ascending the staircase in confidence said he in a low voice his eminence looks for success in the affair i know very well we shall have war with spain but bah war will please the nobles my lord cardinal besides can endow his niece royally nay more than royalty there will be money festivities and fireworks everybody will be delighted well for my part replied the gentleman shaking his head it appears to me that this letter is very light to contain all that my friend replied bernouin i am certain of what i tell you monsieur d'artagnan related all that passed to me aye aye and what did he tell you let us hear i accosted him by asking him on the part of the cardinal if there were any news without discovering my designs observe for monsieur d'artagnan is a cunning hand my dear monsieur bernouin he replied the king is madly in love with mademoiselle de mancini that is all i have to tell you and then i asked him do you think to such a degree that it will urge him to act contrary to the designs of his eminence ah don't ask me said he i think the king capable of anything he has a will of iron and what he wills he wills in earnest if he takes it into his head to marry mademoiselle de mancini he will marry her depend upon it and thereupon he left me and went straight to the stables took a horse saddled it himself 
jumped on its back and set off as if the devil were at his heels so that you believe then i believe that monsieur the lieutenant of the guards knew more than he was willing to say in your opinion then monsieur d'artagnan is gone according to all probability after the exiles to carry out all that can facilitate the success of the king's love chatting thus the two confidants arrived at the door of his eminence's apartment his eminence's gout had left him he was walking about his chamber in a state of great anxiety listening at doors and looking out of windows banouin entered followed by the gentleman who had orders from the king to place the letter in the hands of the cardinal himself mazarin took the letter but before opening it he got up a ready smile a smile of circumstance able to throw a veil over emotions of whatever sort they may be so prepared whatever was the impression received from the letter no reflection of that impression was allowed to transpire upon his countenance well said he when he had read and re-read the letter very well monsieur inform the king that i thank him for his obedience to the wishes of the queen mother and that i will do everything for the accomplishment of his will the gentleman left the room the door had scarcely closed before the cardinal who had no mask for banouin took off that which had so recently covered his face and with a most dismal expression call monsieur de brienne said he five minutes afterward the secretary entered monsieur said mazarin i have just rendered a great service to the monarchy the greatest i have ever rendered it you will carry this letter which proves it to her majesty the queen mother and when she shall have returned it to you you will lodge it in portfolio b which is filled with documents and papers relative to my ministry brienne went as desired and as the letter was unsealed did not fail to read it on his way there is likewise no doubt that banouin who was on good terms with everybody approached so near to the secretary as to be able to read the letter over his shoulder so that the news spread with such activity through the castle that mazarin might have feared it would reach the ears of the queen mother before monsieur de brienne could convey louis the fourteenth's letter to her a moment after orders were given for departure and monsieur de conde having been to pay his respects to the king on his pretended rising inscribed the city of poitiers upon his tablets as the place of sojourn and rest for their majesties thus in a few instants was unravelled an intrigue which had covertly occupied all the diplomacies of europe it had nothing however very clear as a result but to make a poor lieutenant of musketeers lose his commission and his fortune it is true that in exchange he gained his liberty we shall soon know how monsieur d'artagnan profited by this for the moment if the reader will permit us we shall return to the hostelry of les medici of which one of the windows opened at the very moment the orders were given for the departure of the king the window that opened was that of one of the rooms of charles the second the unfortunate prince had passed the night in bitter reflections his head resting on his hands and his elbows on the table whilst parry infirm and old wearied in body and in mind had fallen asleep in a corner a singular fortune was that of this faithful servant 
who saw beginning for the second generation the fearful series of misfortunes which had weighed so heavily on the first when charles the second had well thought over the fresh defeat he had experienced when he perfectly comprehended the complete isolation into which he had just fallen on seeing his fresh hope left behind him he was seized as with a vertigo and sank back in the large armchair in which he was seated then god took pity on the unhappy prince and sent to console him sleep the innocent brother of death he did not wake till half-past six that is to say till the sun shone brightly into his chamber and parry motionless with fear of waking him was observing with profound grief the eyes of the young man already red with wakefulness and his cheeks pale with suffering and privations at length the noise of some heavy carts descending toward the loire awakened charles he arose looked around him like a man who has forgotten everything perceived parry shook him by the hand and commanded him to settle the reckoning with master cropola master cropola being called upon to settle his account with parry acquitted himself it must be allowed like an honest man he only made his customary remark that the two travellers had eaten nothing which had the double disadvantage of being humiliating for his kitchen and of forcing him to ask payment for a repast not consumed but not the less lost parry had nothing to say to the contrary and paid i hope said the king it has not been the same with the horses i don't see that they have eaten at your expense and it would be a misfortune for travellers like us who have a long journey to make to have our horses fail us but cropola at this doubt assumed his majestic air and replied that the stables of les medici were not less hospitable than its refectory the king mounted his horse his old servant did the same and both set out toward paris without meeting a single person on their road in the streets or the faubourgs of the city for the prince the blow was the more severe as it was a fresh exile the unfortunates cling to the smallest hopes as the happy do to the greatest good and when they are obliged to quit the place where that hope has soothed their hearts they experience the mortal regret which the banished man feels when he places his foot upon the vessel which is to bear him into exile it appears that the heart already wounded so many times suffers from the least scratch it appears that it considers as a good the momentary absence of evil which is nothing but the absence of pain and that god into the most terrible misfortunes has thrown hope as the drop of water which the rich bad man in hell entreated of lazarus for one instant even the hope of charles the second had been more than a fugitive joy that was when he found himself so kindly welcomed by his brother king then it had taken a form that had become a reality then all at once the refusal of mazarin had reduced the fictitious reality to the state of a dream this promise of louis the fourteenth so soon retracted had been nothing but a mockery a mockery like his crown like his sceptre like his friends like all that had surrounded his royal childhood and which had abandoned his proscribed youth mockery everything was a mockery for charles the second except the cold black repose promised by death such were the ideas of the unfortunate prince while sitting listlessly upon his horse to which he abandoned the reins 
he rode slowly along beneath the warm May sun, in which the somber misanthropy of the exile perceived the last insult to his grief. End of chapter 15 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Chapter 16 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 3, Part 1 by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Remember. A horseman was going rapidly along the road leading toward Blois, which he had left nearly half an hour before, passed the two travellers, and though apparently in haste, raised his hat as he passed them. The king scarcely observed this young man, who was about twenty-five years of age, and who, turning round several times, made friendly signals to a man standing before the gate of a handsome white and red house. That is to say, built of brick and stone, with a slated roof, situated on the left hand of the road the prince was travelling. This man, old, tall, and thin, with white hair, we speak of the one standing by the gate. This man replied to the farewell signals of the young one by signs of parting as tender as could have been made by a father. The young man disappeared at the first turn of the road, bordered by fine trees, and the old man was preparing to return to the house when the two travellers, arriving in front of the gate, attracted his attention. The king, we have said, was riding with his head cast down, his arms inert, leaving his horse to go what pace he liked, whilst Parry, behind him, the better to imbibe the genial influence of the sun, had taken off his hat and was looking about right and left. His eyes encountered those of the old man leaning against the gate. The latter, as if struck by some strange spectacle, uttered an exclamation and made one step toward the two travellers. From Parry his eyes immediately turned toward the king, upon whom they rested for an instant. This exclamation, however rapid, was instantly reflected in a visible manner upon the features of the tall old man, for scarcely had he recognized the younger of the travellers and we say recognized, for nothing but a perfect recognition could have explained such an act. Scarcely, we say, had he recognized the younger of the two travellers, than he clapped his hands together with respectful surprise, and raising his hat from his head, bowed so profoundly that it might have been said he was kneeling. This demonstration, however, absent, or rather, however, absorbed was the king in his reflections, attracted his attention instantly, and checking his horse and turning towards Perry, he exclaimed, "'Good God, Perry! Who is that man who salutes me in such a mocked manner? Can he know me, think you?' Perry, much agitated and very pale, had already turned his horse toward the gate. "'Ah, sire!' said he, stopping suddenly at five of six paces distance from the still-bending man. "'Sire, I am seized with astonishment!' for I think I recognize that brave man. Yes, it must be he. Will your majesty permit me to speak to him? Certainly. Can it be you, Monsieur Grimaud? 
asked Perry. "'Yes, it is I,' replied the tall old man, drawing himself up, but without losing his respectful demeanor. "'Sire,' then said Perry, "'I was not deceived. This good man is the servant of the Comte de la Fere, and the Comte de la Fere, if you remember, is the worthy gentleman of whom I have so often spoken to your majesty that the remembrance of him must remain, not only in your mind, but in your heart. He who assisted my father at his last moments, asked Charles, evidently affected at the remembrance. The same, sire. Alas, said Charles, and then addressing Grimaud, whose penetrating and intelligent eyes seemed to search and divine his thoughts. My friend, said he, does your master, Monsieur le Comte de la Fere, live in this neighborhood? There, replied Grimaud, pointing with his outstretched arm to the white and red house behind the gate. And is Monsieur le Comte de la Fere at home at present? At the back, under the chestnut trees. Parry, said the king, I will not miss this opportunity, so precious for me, to thank the gentleman to whom our house is indebted for such a noble example of devotedness and generosity. Hold my horse, my friend, if you please. And throwing the bridle to Grimaud, the king entered the abode of Athos, quite alone, as one equal enters the dwelling of another. Charles had been informed by the concise explanation of Grimaud, at the back, under the chestnut-trees. He left, therefore, the house on the left, and went straight down the path indicated. The thing was easy. The tops of those noble trees, already covered with leaves and flowers, rose above all the rest. On arriving under the lozenges, by turns luminous and dark, which checkered the ground of this path according as the trees were more or less in leaf, the young prince perceived a gentleman walking with his arms behind him, apparently plunged in a deep meditation. Without doubt, he had often had this gentleman described to him, for without hesitating, Charles II walked straight up to him. At the sound of his footsteps, the Comte de la Fere raised his head, and seeing an unknown man of noble and elegant carriage coming toward him, he raised his hat and waited. At some paces from him, Charles II likewise took off his hat, then, as if in reply to the Comte's mute interrogation, "'Monsieur le Comte,' said he, "'I come to discourage a duty toward you. I have for a long time had the expression of a profound gratitude to bring you. I am Charles the Second, son of Charles Stuart, who reigned in England and died on the scaffold.' On hearing this illustrious name, Athos felt a kind of shudder creep through his veins, but at the sight of the young prince standing uncovered before him, and stretching out his hand toward him, two tears for an instant dimmed his brilliant eyes. He bent respectfully, but the prince took him by the hand. "'See how unfortunate I am, my lord count. It is only due to chance that I have met with you. Alas! I ought to have people around me whom I love and honor. Whereas... I am reduced to preserve their services in my heart and their names in my memory, so that if your servant had not recognized mine, I should have passed by your door as by that of a stranger. It is but too true, said Athos, replying with his voice to the first part of the king's speech, 
and with a bow to the second. "'It is but too true, indeed, that your majesty has seen many evil days.' "'And the worst, alas!' replied Charles, "'are perhaps still to come.' "'Sire, let us hope.' "'Count, Count!' continued Charles, shaking his head. "'I entertained hope till last night, and that of a good Christian, I swear.' Athos looked at the king as if to interrogate him. "'Oh, the history is soon related,' said Charles. "'Proscribed, despoiled, disdained, I resolved, in spite of all my repugnance, to tempt fortune one last time. Is it not written above that, for our family, all good fortune and all bad fortune shall eternally come from France? You know something of that, monsieur, you who are one of the Frenchmen whom my unfortunate father found at the foot of his scaffold on the day of his death, after having found them at his right hand on the day of battle. Sire, said Athos modestly, I was not alone. My companions and I did, under the circumstances, our duty as gentlemen. And that was all. Your Majesty was about to do me the honor to relate. That is true. I had the protection. Pardon my hesitation, Count, but for a steward, you who understand everything, you will comprehend that the word is hard to pronounce. I had, I say, the protection of my cousin, the Stadtholder of Holland, but without the intervention, or at least without the authorization of France, the Stadtholder would not take the initiative. I came then to ask this authorization of the King of France, who has refused me. The King has refused you, sire? Oh, not he. All justice must be rendered to my younger brother, Louis, but— Monsieur de Mazarin, Athos bit his lips. You, perhaps, think I should have expected this refusal, said the king, who had noticed the movement. That was, in truth, my thought, sire, replied Athos respectfully. I know that Italian of old. Then I determined to come to the test, and to know at once the last word of my destiny. I told my brother Louis— that not to compromise either France or Holland, I would tempt fortune myself in person, as I had already done, with two hundred gentlemen, if he would give them to me, and a million if he would lend it me. Well, sire? Well, monsieur, I am suffering at this moment something strange, and that is the satisfaction of despair. There is in certain souls and I have just discovered that mine is of the number, a real satisfaction in the assurance that all is lost, and the time is come to yield. "'Oh, I hope,' said Athos, "'that your majesty is not come to that extremity.' "'To say so, my lord count, to endeavor to revive hope in my heart, you must have ill understood what I have just told you. I came to Blois.' to ask of my brother Louis the alms of a million, with which I had the hopes of re-establishing my affairs, and my brother Louis has refused me. You see, then, plainly, that all is lost. Will your majesty permit me to express a contrary opinion? How is that, Count? 
do you think my heart of so low an order that i do not know how to face my position sire i have always seen that it was in desperate positions that suddenly the great turns of fortune have taken place thank you count it is some comfort to meet with a heart like yours that is to say sufficiently trustful in god and in monarchy never to despair of a royal fortune however low it may be fallen unfortunately my dear count your words are like those remedies they call sovereign and which though able to cure curable wounds or diseases fail against death thank you for your perseverance in consoling me count thanks for your devoted remembrance but i know in what i must trust nothing will save me now and see my friend i was so convinced that i was taking the route of exile with my old perry i was returning to devour my poignant griefs in the little hermitage offered me by holland there believe me count all will soon be over and death will come quickly it is called so often by this body eaten up by its soul and by this soul which aspires to heaven your majesty has a mother a sister and brothers your majesty is the head of the family and ought therefore to ask a long life of god instead of imploring him for a prompt death your majesty is an exile a fugitive but you have right on your side you ought to aspire to combats dangerous business and not to rest in heavens count said charles the second with a smile of indescribable sadness have you ever heard of a king who reconquered his kingdom with one servant of the age of parry and with three hundred crowns which that servant carried in his purse no sire but i have heard and that more than once that a dethroned king has recovered his kingdom with a firm will perseverance some friends and a million skilfully employed but you cannot have understood me the million i asked of my brother louis was refused me sire said athos will your majesty grant me a few minutes and listen attentively to what remains for me to say to you charles the second looked earnestly at athos willingly monsieur said he then i will show your majesty the way resumed the count directing his steps toward the house he then conducted the king to his study and begged him to be seated sire said he your majesty just now told me that in the present state of england a million would suffice for the recovery of your kingdom to attempt it at least monsieur and to die as a king if i should not succeed well then sire let your majesty according to the promise you have made me have the goodness to listen to what i have to say charles made an affirmative sign with his head athos walked straight up to the door the bolts of which he drew after looking to see if anybody was near and then returned sire said he your majesty has kindly remembered that i lent assistance to the very noble and very unfortunate charles i when his executioners conducted him from st james's to whitehall yes certainly i do remember it and always shall remember it sire it is a dismal history to be heard by a son 
who no doubt has had it related to him many times, and yet I ought to repeat it to your majesty without omitting one detail. Speak on, monsieur. When the king your father ascended the scaffold, or rather when he passed from his chamber to the scaffold on a level with his window, everything was prepared for his escape. The executioner was got out of the way, a hole contrived under the floor of his apartment. I myself was beneath the funeral vault, which I heard all at once creak beneath his feet. Parry has related to me all these terrible details, monsieur. Athos bowed and resumed. But here is something he has not related to you, sire, for what follows passed between God, your father, and myself, and never has the revelation of it been made even to my dearest friends. Go a little further off, said the august patient to the executioner. It is but for an instant, and I know that I belong to you, but remember not to strike till I give the signal. I wish to offer up my prayers in freedom. Pardon me, said Charles the Second, turning very pale. But you count, who know so many details of this melancholy event, details which, as you said just now, have never been revealed to any one. Do you know the name of that infernal executioner, of that base wretch who concealed his face that he might assassinate a king with impunity? Athos became slightly pale. His name said he yes i know it but cannot tell it and what has become of him for nobody in england knows his destiny he is dead but he did not die in his bed he did not die a calm and peaceful death he did not die the death of the good he died a violent death in a terrible night, rendered so by the passions of man, and a tempest from God. His body, pierced by a dagger, sank to the depths of the ocean. God pardon his murderer. Proceed, then, said Charles the Second, seeing that the Count was unwilling to say more. The King of England, after having, as I have said, spoken thus to the masked executioner, added— observe you will not strike till i shall stretch out my arms saying remember i was aware said charles in an agitated voice that that was the last word pronounced by my unfortunate father but why and for whom for the french gentleman placed beneath his scaffold for you then monsieur yes sire and every one of the words which he spoke to me through the planks of the scaffold covered with a black cloth still sounds in my ears the king knelt down on one knee comte de la fere said he are you there yes sire replied i then the king stooped toward the boards charles the second also palpitating with interest burning with grief stooped towards Athos to catch one by one every word that escaped from him. His head touched that of the Comte. Then, continued Athos, the king stooped. Comte de la Fere, said he, I could not be saved by you. It was not to be, 
now even though i commit a sacrilege i must speak to you yes i have spoken to men yes i have spoken to god and i speak to you the last to sustain a cause which i thought sacred i have lost the throne of my fathers and the heritage of my children charles the second concealed his face in his hands and a bitter tear glided between his white and slender fingers i have still a million in gold continued the king i buried it in the vaults of the castle of newcastle a moment before i left that city charles raised his head with an expression of such painful joy that it would have drawn tears from any one acquainted with his misfortunes a million murmured he oh count you alone know that this money exists employ it when you think it can be of the greatest service to my eldest son and now comte de la fere bid me adieu 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 sire cried i charles arose and went and leant his burning brow against the window it was then continued athos that the king pronounced the word remember addressed to me you see sire that i have remembered the king could not resist or conceal his emotion athos beheld the movement of his shoulders which undulated convulsively he heard the sobs which burst from his overcharged breast he was silent himself suffocated by the flood of bitter remembrances he had just poured upon that royal head charles the second with a violent effort left the window devoured his tears and came and sat by athos sire said the latter i thought till to-day that the time had not yet arrived for the employment of the last resource but with my eyes fixed upon england i felt it was approaching to-morrow i meant to go and inquire about what part of the world your majesty was and then i proposed going to you you come to me sire that is an indication that god is with us my lord said charles in a voice choked by emotion you are for me what an angel sent from heaven would be you are a preserver sent to me from the tomb of my father himself but believe me for ten years civil war has passed over my country striking down men tearing up the soil it is no more probable that gold should remain in the entrails of the earth than love in the hearts of my subjects sire the spot in which his majesty buried the million is well known to me and no one i am sure has been able to discover it besides is the castle of newcastle quite destroyed have they demolished it stone by stone and uprooted the soil to the last tree No it is still standing but at this moment general monk occupies it and is encamped there the only spot from which i could look for succor where i possess a single resource you see is invaded by my enemies general monk sire cannot have discovered the treasure which i speak of yes but can i go and deliver myself up to monk in order to recover this treasure ah count you see plainly i must yield to destiny since it strikes me to the earth every time i rise 
what can i do with parry as my only servant with parry whom monk has already driven from his presence no 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 count we must yield to this last blow but what your majesty cannot do and what parry can no more attempt do you not believe that i could succeed in accomplishing you you count you would go if it please your majesty said athos bowing to the king yes i will go sire what you so happy here count i am never happy when i have a duty left to accomplish and it is an imperative duty which the king your father left me to watch over your fortunes and make a royal use of his money so if your majesty honors me with a sign i will go with you ah monsieur said the king forgetting all royal etiquette and throwing his arms around the neck of athos you prove to me that there is a god in heaven and that this god sometimes sends messengers to the unfortunate who groan on the earth athos exceedingly moved by this burst of feeling of the young man thanked him with profound respect and approached the window grimaud cried he bring out my horses what now immediately said the king ah monsieur you are indeed a wonderful man sire said athos i know nothing more pressing than your majesty's service besides added he smiling it is a habit contracted long since in the service of the queen your aunt and of the king your father how is it possible for me to lose it at the moment your majesty's service calls for it what a man murmured the king then after a moment's reflection but no count i cannot expose you to such privations i have no means of rewarding such services <laughs> said athos laughing your majesty is joking have you not a million <laughs> why am i not possessed of half such a sum i would already have raised a regiment but thank god i have still a few rolls of gold and some family diamonds left your majesty will i hope deign to share with a devoted servant with a friend yes count but on a condition that in his turn that friend will share with me hereafter sire said athos opening a casket from which he drew both gold and jewels you see sire we are too rich fortunately there are four of us in the event of our meeting with thieves joy made the blood rush to the pale cheeks of charles the second as he saw athos's two horses led by grimaud already booted for the journey advance toward the porch blaisois this letter for the vicomte de bragelonne for everybody else i am gone to paris i confide the house to you blaisois blaisois bowed shook hands with grimaud and shut the gate End of chapter 16 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 17 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 3, Part 1 by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain In which Aramis is sought and only Bazin is found 
two hours had scarcely elapsed since the departure of the master of the house, who, in Blaisois's sight, had taken the road to Paris, when a horseman, mounted on a good pied horse, stopped before the gate, and with a sonorous halloa, called the stable-boys, who with the gardeners had formed a circle round Blaisois, the historian and ordinary to the household of the chateau. This hola, doubtless well known to Master Blaisois, made him turn his head and exclaim, Monsieur d'Artagnan, run quickly, you chaps, and open the gate. A swarm of eight brisk lads flew to the gate, which was opened as if it had been made of feathers, and every one loaded him with attentions, for they knew the welcome this friend was accustomed to receive from their master, and for such remarks the eye of the valet may always be depended upon. Ah, said Monsieur d'Artagnan, with an agreeable smile, balancing himself upon his stirrup to jump to the ground. Where is that dear Count? Ah, how unfortunate you are, monsieur, said Blaisois, and how unfortunate will monsieur le comte our master think himself when he hears of your coming. As ill luck will have it, monsieur le comte left home two hours ago. D'Artagnan did not trouble himself about such trifles. Very good, said he. You always speak the best French in the world. You shall give me a lesson in grammar and correct language, whilst I wait the return of your master. That is impossible, monsieur, said Blaisois. You would have to wait too long. Will he not come back to-day, then? No, nor to-morrow, nor the day after to-morrow. Monsieur le Comte has gone on a journey. A journey? said D'Artagnan, surprised. That's a fable, Mr. Blaisois. Monsieur, it is no more than the truth. Monsieur has done me the honor to give me the house in charge, and he added, with his voice so full of authority and kindness, that is all one to me. You will say I have gone to Paris. Well, cried D'Artagnan, since he has gone toward Paris, that is all I wanted to know. You should have told me so at first, booby. He is then two hours in advance. Yes, monsieur. I shall soon overtake him. Is he alone? No, monsieur. Who is with him, then? A gentleman whom I don't know, an old man, and monsieur Grimaud. Such a party cannot travel as fast as I can. I will start. Will monsieur listen to me an instant? said Blaisois, laying his hand gently on the reins of the horse. Yes, if you don't favor me with fine speeches, and make haste. Well, then, monsieur, that word Paris appears to me to be only an excuse. Oh, oh, said D'Artagnan seriously. An excuse, eh? Yes, monsieur, and monsieur le comte is not going to Paris. I will swear. What makes you think so? This. Monsieur Grimaud always knows where our master is going, and he had promised me that the first time he went to Paris he would take a little money for me to my wife. What? Have you a wife, then? I had one. She was of this country, but Monsieur thought her a noisy scold, so I sent her to Paris. It is sometimes inconvenient, but very agreeable at others. I understand. But go on. You do not believe the Count gone to Paris. No, monsieur, for then Monsieur Grimaud would have broken his word. He would have perjured himself, 
and that is impossible that is impossible repeated d'artagnan quite in a study because he was quite convinced well my brave blaisois many thanks to you blaisois bowed come you know i am not curious i have serious business with your master could you not by a little bit of a word you who speak so well give me to understand one syllable only i will guess the rest upon my word monsieur i cannot i am quite ignorant where monsieur le comte is gone as to listening at doors that is contrary to my nature and besides it is forbidden here my dear fellow said d'artagnan this is a very bad beginning for me never mind you know when monsieur le comte will return at least as little monsieur as the place of his destination come blaisois come search monsieur doubts my sincerity ah monsieur that grieves me much the devil take his gilded tongue grumbled d'artagnan a clown with a word would be worth a dozen of him adieu monsieur i have the honor to present you my respects cuistre said d'artagnan to himself the fellow is unbearable he gave another look up to the house turned his horse's head and set off like a man who has nothing either annoying or embarrassing in his mind when he was at the end of the wall and out of sight well now i wonder said he breathing quickly whether athos was at home no all those idlers standing with their arms crossed would have been at work if the eye of the master was near athos gone a journey that is incomprehensible bah it is all devilish mysterious and then no he is not the man i want i want one of a cunning patient mind my business is at meloon in a certain presbytery i am acquainted with forty-five leagues four days and a half well it is fine weather and i am free never mind the distance and he put his horse into a trot directing his course toward paris on the fourth day he alighted at meloon as he had indicated d'artagnan was never in the habit of asking anyone on the road for any common information for these sorts of details unless in very serious circumstances he confided in his perspicacity which was so seldom at fault in his experience of thirty years and in a great habit of reading the physiognomies of houses as well as those of men at meloon d'artagnan immediately found the presbytery a charming house plastered over red brick with vines climbing along the gutters and a cross in carved stone surmounting the ridge of the roof from the ground floor of this house came a noise or rather a confusion of voices like the chirping of young birds when the brood is just hatched under the down one of these voices was spelling the alphabet distinctly a voice thick yet pleasant at the same time scolded the talkers and corrected the faults of the reader d'artagnan recognized that voice and as the window of the ground floor was open he leant down from his horse under the branches and red fibres of the vine and cried bazin my dear bazin good day to you a short fat man with a flat face a cranium ornamented with a crown of gray hairs cut short in imitation of a tonsure 
and covered with an old black velvet cap arose as soon as he heard d'artagnan we ought not to say arose but bounded up in fact bazin bounded up carrying with him his little low chair which the children tried to take away with battles more fierce than those of the greeks endeavoring to recover the body of patroclus from the hands of the trojans bazin did more than bound he let fall both his alphabet and his feral you said he you monsieur d'artagnan yes myself where is aramis no monsieur le chevalier d'herblay no i am still mistaken monsieur le vicaire general ah oh, monsieur said bazin with dignity monseigneur is at his diocese what did you say said d'artagnan bazin repeated the sentence <laughs> but has aramis a diocese yes monsieur why not is he a bishop then why where can you come from said bazin rather irreverently that you don't know that my dear bazin we pagans we men of the sword know very well when a man is made a colonel or maitre de camp or marshal of france but if he be made a bishop archbishop or pope devil take me if the news reaches us before the three quarters of the earth have had the advantage of it hush hush said bazin opening his eyes do not spoil these poor children in whom i am endeavoring to inculcate such good principles in fact the children had surrounded d'artagnan whose horse long sword spurs and martial air they very much admired but above all they admired his strong voice so that when he uttered his oath the whole school cried out the devil take me with fearful bursts of laughter shouts and bounds which delighted the musketeer and bewildered the old pedagogue there said he hold your tongues you brats you have come monsieur d'artagnan and all my good principles fly away with you as usual comes disorder babel is revived ah good lord ah the wild little wretches and the worthy bazin distributed right and left blows which increased the cries of his scholars by changing the nature of them at least said he you will no longer decoy any one here do you think so said d'artagnan with a smile which made a shudder creep over the shoulders of bazin he is capable of it murmured he where is your master's diocese monseigneur rene is bishop of vannes who had him nominated why monsieur le surintendant our neighbor what monsieur fouquet to be sure he did is aramis on good terms with him then monseigneur preached every sunday at the house of monsieur le surintendant at vau then they hunted together ah and monseigneur composed his homilies no i mean his sermons with monsieur le surintendant bah he preached in verse then this worthy bishop monsieur for the love of heaven do not jest with sacred things there bazin there so then 
Aramis is at Van. At Van in Bretagne. You are a deceitful old hunks, Bazin. That is not true. See, monsieur, if you please. The apartments of the presbytery are empty. He is right there, said D'Artagnan, looking attentively at the house, the aspect of which announced solitude. But Monseigneur must have written you an account of his promotion. When did it take place? A month back. Oh, then there is no time lost. Aramis cannot yet have wanted me. But how is it, Bazin, you do not follow your master? Monsieur, I cannot. I have occupations. Your alphabet? And my penitence. What do you confess, then? Are you a priest? The same as one. I have such a call. But the orders? Oh, said Bazin, without hesitation, now that Monseigneur is a bishop, I shall soon have my orders, or at least my dispensations. And he rubbed his hands. Decidedly, said D'Artagnan to himself, there will be no means of uprooting these people. Get me some supper, Bazin. With pleasure, monsieur. A fowl, a bouillon, and a bottle of wine. This is Saturday, monsieur. It is a day of abstinence. I have a dispensation, said D'Artagnan. Bazin looked at him suspiciously. <laughs> Master hypocrite, said the musketeer, for whom do you take me? If you, who are the valet, hope for dispensation to commit a crime, shall not I, the friend of your bishop, have dispensation for eating meat at the call of my stomach? Make yourself agreeable with me, Bazin, or by heavens I will complain to the king, and you shall never confess. Now, you know that the nomination of bishops rests with the king. I have the king. I am the stronger. Bazin smiled hypocritically. Ah! Oh. But we have Monsieur le Surintendant, said he. And you laugh at the king, then? Bazin made no reply. His smile was sufficiently eloquent. My supper, said D'Artagnan. It is getting towards seven o'clock. Bazin turned round and ordered the eldest of the pupils to inform the cook. In the meantime, D'Artagnan surveyed the presbytery. Phew, said he disdainfully. Monseigneur lodged his grandeur very meanly here. "'We have the Chateau de Vaux, said Bazin. "'Which is perhaps equal to the Louvre,' said D'Artagnan jeeringly. "'Which is better?' replied Bazin with the greatest coolness imaginable. "'Ha!' <laughs> said D'Artagnan. He would perhaps have prolonged the discussion— and maintained the superiority of the Louvre, but the lieutenant perceived that his horse remained fastened to the bars of a gate. "'The devil!' said he. "'Get my horse looked after. Your master the bishop has none like him in his stables.' Bazin cast a sidelong glance at the horse and replied, "'Monsieur le surintendant gave him four from his own stables, and each of the four is worth four of yours.' The blood mounted to the face of D'Artagnan. His hand itched, and his eye glanced over the head of Bazin to select the place upon which he should discharge his anger. But it passed away, 
Reflection came, and D'Artagnan contented himself with saying, "'The devil! The devil! I have done well to quit the service of the king. Tell me, worthy Master Bazin,' added he, "'how many musketeers does Monsieur le Surintendant retain in his service?' "'He could have all there are in the kingdom with his money,' replied Bazin, closing his book and dismissing the boys with some kindly blows of his cane. "'The devil! The devil!' repeated d'artagnan once more as if to annoy the pedagogue but as supper was now announced he followed the cook who introduced him into the refectory where it awaited him d'artagnan placed himself at the table and began a hearty attack upon his fowl it appears to me said d'artagnan biting with all his might at the tough fowl they had served up to him and which they had evidently forgotten to fatten it appears that i have done wrong in not seeking service with that master yonder a powerful noble this intendant seemingly in good truth we poor fellows know nothing at the court and the rays of the sun prevent our seeing the large stars which are also suns at a little greater distance from our earth that is all as d'artagnan delighted both from pleasure and system in making people talk about things which interested him he fenced in his best style with master bazin but it was pure loss of time beyond the tiresome and hyperbolical praises of monsieur le surintendant of the finances bazin who on his side was on his guard afforded nothing but platitudes to the curiosity of d'artagnan so that our musketeer in a tolerably bad humor desired to go to bed as soon as he had supped d'artagnan was introduced by bazin into a mean chamber in which there was a poor bed but d'artagnan was not fastidious in that respect he had been told that aramis had taken away the key of his own private apartment and as he knew aramis was a very particular man and had generally many things to conceal in his apartment he had not been surprised he therefore although it appeared comparatively even harder attacked the bed as bravely as he had done the fowl and as he had as good an inclination to sleep as he had had to eat he took scarcely longer time to be snoring harmoniously than he had employed in picking the last bones of the bird since he was no longer in the service of any one d'artagnan had promised himself to indulge in sleeping as soundly as he had formerly slept lightly but with whatever good faith d'artagnan had made himself this promise and whatever desire he might have to keep it religiously he was awakened in the middle of the night by a loud noise of carriages and servants on horseback a sudden illumination flashed over the walls of his chamber. He jumped out of bed and ran to the window in his shirt. "'Can the king be coming this way?' he thought, rubbing his eyes. "'In truth, such a suite can only be attached to royalty.' "'Vive, monsieur le surintendant!' cried, or rather vociferated, from a window on the ground floor a voice which he recognized as Bazin's, who at the same time waved a handkerchief with one hand and held a large candle in the other. D'Artagnan then saw something like a brilliant human form leaning out of the principal carriage. At the same time, loud bursts of laughter, caused no doubt by the strange figure of Bazin, and issuing from the same carriage, left, as it were, a train of joy upon the passage of the rapid cortege. "'I might easily see it was not the king,' said D'Artagnan. "'People don't laugh so heartily when the king passes.' "'Hola, Bazin!' cried he to his neighbor three-quarters of whose body still hung out from the window, to follow the carriage with his eyes as long as he could. "'What is all that about?' 
it is monsieur fouquet said bazin in a patronizing tone and all those people that is the court of monsieur fouquet oh oh said d'artagnan what would monsieur de mazarin say to that if he heard it and he returned to his bed asking himself how aramis always contrived to be protected by the most powerful personages in the kingdom is it that he has more luck than i or that i am a greater fool than he bah that was the concluding word by the aid of which d'artagnan having become wise now terminated every thought and every period of his style formerly he said mordieu which was the prick of the spur but now he had become older and he murmured that philosophical bah which served as a bridle to all the passions end of chapter seventeen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter eighteen of the d'artagnan romances volume three part one by alexander dumas translated by william robson this librivox recording is in the public domain in which d'artagnan seeks porthos and only finds mousqueton when d'artagnan had perfectly convinced himself that the absence of the vicar general d'herblay was real and that his friend was not to be found at melun or in its vicinity he left bazin without regret cast an ill-natured glance at the magnificent chateau de vaux which was beginning to shine with that splendor which brought on its ruin and compressing his lips like a man full of mistrust and suspicion he put spurs to his pied horse saying well well i have still pierre font left and there i shall find the best man and the best filled coffer and that is all i want for i have an idea of my own we will spare our readers the prosaic incidents of d'artagnan's journey which terminated on the morning of the third day within sight of pierrefonds d'artagnan came by the way of nanteuil le hardouin and crepy at a distance he perceived the castle of louis of orleans which having become part of the crown domain was kept by an old concierge this was one of those marvellous manors of the middle ages with walls twenty feet in thickness and a hundred in height d'artagnan rode slowly past its walls measured its towers with his eye and descended into the valley from afar he looked down upon the chateau of porthos situated on the shores of a small lake and contiguous to a magnificent forest it was the same place we have already had the honor of describing to our readers we shall therefore satisfy ourselves with naming it the first thing d'artagnan perceived after the fine trees the may sun gilding the sides of the green hills the long rows of feather-topped trees which stretched out towards Compagne was a large rolling box pushed forward by two servants and dragged by two others in this box there was an enormous green and gold thing which went along the smiling glades of the park thus dragged and pushed this thing at a distance could not be distinguished and signified absolutely nothing nearer it was a hogshead muffled in gold-bound green cloth when close it was a man or rather a pusa the interior extremity of whom spreading over the interior of the box entirely filled it when still closer the man was mousqueton mousqueton with gray hair and a face as red as punchinello's pardieu cried d'artagnan why that's my dear monsieur mousqueton ah cried the fat man oh 
what happiness what joy there's monsieur d'artagnan stop you rascals these last words were addressed to the lackeys who pushed and dragged him the box stopped and the four lackeys with a precision quite military took off their laced hats and ranged themselves behind it oh monsieur d'artagnan said mousqueton why can i not embrace your knees but i have become impotent as you see dame my dear mousqueton it is age no monsieur it is not age it is infirmities troubles troubles you mousqueton said d'artagnan making the tour of the box are you out of your mind my dear friend thank god you are as hearty as a three hundred year old oak ah oh, but my legs monsieur my legs groaned the faithful servant what's the matter with your legs oh they will no longer bear me huh the ungrateful things and yet you feed them well mousqueton apparently alas yes they can reproach me with nothing in that respect said mousqueton with a sigh i have always done what i could for my poor body i am not selfish and mousqueton sighed afresh i wonder whether mousqueton wants to be a baron too as he sighs after that fashion thought d'artagnan mon dieu monsieur said mousqueton as if rousing himself from a painful reverie how happy monseigneur will be that you have thought of him kind porthos cried d'artagnan i am anxious to embrace him oh said mousqueton much affected i shall certainly write to him what cried d'artagnan you will write to him this very day i shall not delay it an hour is he not here then no monsieur but he is near at hand is he far off oh can i tell monsieur can i tell mordieu cried the musketeer stamping with his foot i am unfortunate porthos such a stay-at-home monsieur there is not a more sedentary man than monseigneur but but what when a friend presses you a friend doubtless the worthy monsieur d'herblay what has aramis pressed porthos this is how the thing happened monsieur d'artagnan monsieur d'herblay wrote to monseigneur indeed a letter monsieur such a pressing letter that it threw us all into a bustle tell me all about it my dear friend said d'artagnan but remove these people a little further off first mousqueton shouted fall back you fellows with such powerful lungs that the breath without the words would have been sufficient to disperse the four lackeys d'artagnan seated himself on the shaft of the box and opened his ears monsieur said mousqueton monseigneur then received a letter from monsieur le vicaire general d'herblay eight or nine days ago it was the day of the rustic pleasures yes 
it must have been wednesday what do you mean said d'artagnan the day of rustic pleasures yes monsieur we have so many pleasures to take in this delightful country that we were encumbered by them so much so that we have been forced to regulate the distribution of them how easily do i recognize porthos's love of order in that now that idea would never have occurred to me but then i am not encumbered with pleasures we were though said mousqueton and how did you regulate the matter let me know said d'artagnan it is rather long monsieur never mind we have plenty of time and you speak so well my dear mousqueton that it is really a pleasure to hear you it is true said mousqueton with a sigh of satisfaction which emanated evidently from the justice which had been rendered him it is true i have made great progress in the company of monseigneur i am waiting for the distribution of the pleasures mousqueton and with impatience i want to know if i have arrived on a lucky day oh monsieur d'artagnan said mousqueton in a melancholy tone since monseigneur's departure all the pleasures have gone too well my dear mousqueton refresh your memory with what day shall i begin eh, pardieu begin with sunday that is the lord's day sunday monsieur yes sunday's pleasures are religious monseigneur goes to mass makes the bread offering and has discourses and instructions made to him by his almoner in ordinary that is not very amusing but we expect a carmelite from paris who will do the duty of our almonry and who we are assured speaks very well which will keep us awake whereas our present almoner always sends us to sleep these are sunday religious pleasures on monday worldly pleasures ha <laughs> said d'artagnan what do you mean by that let us have a glimpse at your worldly pleasures monsieur on monday we go into the world we pay and receive visits we play on the lute we dance we make verses and burn a little incense in honor of the ladies peste that is the height of gallantry said the musketeer who was obliged to call to his aid all the strength of his facial muscles to suppress an enormous inclination to laugh tuesday learned pleasures good cried d'artagnan what are they detail them my dear mousqueton monseigneur has bought a sphere or globe which i shall show you it fills all the perimeter of the great tower except a gallery which he has built over the sphere there are sh little strings and brass wires to which the sun and moon are hooked it all turns and that is very beautiful monseigneur points out to me seas and distant countries we don't intend to visit them but it is very interesting interesting yes that's the word repeated d'artagnan and wednesday rustic pleasures 
as I have had the honor to tell you, Monsieur le Chevalier, we look over Monseigneur's sheep and goats. We make the shepherds dance to pipes and reeds, as is written in a book Monseigneur has in his library, which is called Bergerie's. The author died about a month ago. Monsieur Racan, perhaps, said D'Artagnan. Yes, that was his name, Monsieur Racan. But that is not all. We angle in the little canal, after which we dine, crowned with flowers. That is Wednesday. Peste, said D'Artagnan. You don't divide your pleasures badly. And Thursday? What can be left for poor Thursday? It is not very unfortunate, monsieur, said Mousqueton, smiling. Thursday, Olympian pleasures. Ah, oh, monsieur, that is superb. We get together all Monseigneur's young vassals, and we make them throw the disc, wrestle, and run races. Monseigneur can't run now. No more can I. But Monseigneur throws the disc as nobody else can throw it, and when he does deal a blow, oh, that proves a misfortune. How so? Yes, monsieur, we were obliged to renounce the cestus. He cracked heads, he broke jaws, beat in ribs. It was charming sport, but nobody was willing to play with him. Then his wrist? Oh, monsieur, firmer than ever. Monseigneur gets a trifle weaker in his legs. He confesses that himself but his strength has all taken refuge in his arms, so that... So that he can knock down bullocks as he used formerly? Monsieur, better than that, he beats in walls. Lately, after having supped with one of our farmers, you know how popular and kind Monseigneur is, after supper has a joke, he struck the wall with a blow. The wall crumbled away beneath his hand, the roof fell in, and three men and an old woman were stifled. Good God, Mousqueton! And your master? Oh, Monseigneur, a little skin was rubbed off his head. We bathed the wounds with some water which the monks gave us, but there was nothing the matter with his hand. Nothing? No nothing monsieur deuce take the olympic pleasures they must cost your master too dear for widows and orphans they all had pensions monsieur a tenth of monseigneur's revenue was spent in that way then pass on to friday said d'artagnan friday noble and warlike pleasures we hunt we fence we dress falcons and break horses then saturday is the day for intellectual pleasures we adorn our minds we look at monseigneur's pictures and statues we write even and trace plans and then we fire monseigneur's cannon you draw plans and fire cannon yes monsieur why my friend said d'artagnan Monsieur de Vallon, in truth, possesses the most subtle and amiable mind that I know. But there is one kind of pleasure you have forgotten, it appears to me. What is that, monsieur? asked Mousqueton with anxiety. 
the material pleasures. Mousqueton colored. What do you mean by that, monsieur? said he, casting down his eyes. I mean the table, good wine, evenings occupied, and passing the bottle. Ah, monsieur, we don't reckon those pleasures. We practice them every day. My brave Mousqueton, resumed D'Artagnan, pardon me, but I was so absorbed in your charming recital that I have forgotten the principal object of our conversation, which was to learn what Monsieur le Vicaire General d'Herblay could have to write your master about. That is true, monsieur, said Mousqueton. The pleasures have misled us. Well, monsieur, this is the whole affair. I am all attention, Mousqueton. On Wednesday, the day of the rustic pleasures. Yes, a letter arrived. He received it from my hands. I had recognized the writing. Well? Monseigneur read it and cried out, Quick, my horses, my arms. Oh, good Lord, then it was for some duel, said D'Artagnan. No, monsieur, there were only these words. Dear Porthos, set out if you would wish to arrive before the equinox. I expect you. Mordieu, said D'Artagnan, thoughtfully. That was pressing, apparently. I think so. Therefore, continued Mousqueton, Monseigneur set out the very same day with his secretary in order to endeavor to arrive in time. And did he arrive in time? I hope so. Monseigneur, who is hasty, as you know, monsieur, repeated incessantly, Tonodio. What can this mean? The equinox? Never mind. A fellow must be well mounted to arrive before I do. And you think Porthos will have arrived first, do you? asked D'Artagnan. I am sure of it. This equinox, however rich he may be, has certainly no horses so good as Monseigneur's. D'Artagnan repressed his inclination to laugh, because the brevity of Aramis's letter gave rise to reflection. He followed Mousqueton, or rather, Mousqueton's chariot, to the castle. He sat down to a sumptuous table, of which they did him the honors as to a king. But he could draw nothing from Mousqueton. The faithful servant seemed to shed tears at will, but that was all. D'Artagnan, after a night passed in an excellent bed, reflected much upon the meaning of Aramis's letter, puzzled himself as to the relation of the equinox with the affairs of Porthos, and being unable to make anything out unless it concerned some amour of the bishops, for which it was necessary that the days and nights should be equal. D'Artagnan left Pierrefond as he had left Melun, as he had left the chateau of the Comte de la Fere. It was not, however, without a melancholy which might in good sooth pass for one of the most dismal of D'Artagnan's moods. His head cast down, his eyes fixed, he suffered his legs to hang on each side of his horse, and said to himself, in that vague sort of reverie which ascends sometimes to the sublimest eloquence, No more friends, no more future, no more anything. My energies are broken like the bonds of our ancient friendship. Oh, old age is coming, cold and inexorable. 
it envelops in its funereal crape all that was brilliant all that was embalming in my youth then it throws that sweet burthen on its shoulders and carries it away with the rest into the fathomless gulf of death a shudder crept through the heart of the gascon so brave and so strong against all the misfortunes of life and during some moments the clouds appeared black to him the earth slippery and full of pits as that of cemeteries whither am i going said he to himself what am i going to do alone quite alone without family without friends bah cried he all at once and he clapped spurs to his horse who having found nothing melancholy in the heavy oats of pierre fond profited by this permission to show his gaiety in a gallop which absorbed two leagues to paris said d'artagnan to himself and on the morrow he alighted in paris he had devoted six days to this journey end of chapter eighteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Nineteen of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Three, Part One, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What D'Artagnan went to Paris for. The lieutenant dismounted before a shop in the Rue de Lombard, at the sign of the Pion d'Or. A man of good appearance, wearing a white apron and stroking his grey moustache with a large hand, uttered a cry of joy on perceiving the Piet horse monsieur le chevalier said he ah is that you bonjour planchet replied d'artagnan stooping to enter the shop quick somebody cried planchet to look after monsieur d'artagnan's horse somebody to get his room somebody to prepare his supper thanks planchet good day my children said d'artagnan to the eager boys allow me to send off this coffee this treacle and these raisins said planchet they are for the storeroom of monsieur le surintendant send them off send them off that is only the affair of a moment then we shall sup arrange it that we may sup alone i want to speak to you planchet looked at his old master in a significant manner oh don't be uneasy it is nothing unpleasant said d'artagnan so much the better so much the better and planchet breathed freely again whilst d'artagnan seated himself quietly down in the shop upon a bale of corks and made a survey of the premises the shop was well stocked there was a mingled perfume of ginger cinnamon and ground pepper which made d'artagnan sneeze the shop-boy proud of being in company with so renowned a warrior of a lieutenant of musketeers who approached the person of the king began to work with enthusiasm which was something like delirium and to serve the customers with a disdainful haste that was noticed by several planchet put away his money and made up his accounts amidst civilities addressed to his former master planchet had with his equals the short speech and the haughty familiarity of the rich shopkeeper who serves everybody and waits for nobody d'artagnan observed this habit with a pleasure which we shall analyze presently he saw night come on by degrees and at length planchet conducted him to a chamber on the first story where amidst bales and chests a table very nicely set out awaited the two guests d'artagnan took advantage of a moment's pause to examine the countenance of planchet whom he had not seen for a year 
The shrewd Planchet had acquired a slight protuberance in front, but his countenance was not puffed. His keen eye still played with facility in its deep-sunk orbit, and fat, which levels all the characteristic saliences of the human face, had not yet touched either his high cheekbones, the sign of cunning and cupidity, or his pointed chin, the sign of acuteness and perseverance. Planchet reigned with as much majesty in his dining-room as in his shop. He set before his master a frugal but perfectly Parisian repast, roast meat, cooked at the baker's, with vegetables, salad, and a dessert borrowed from the shop itself. D'Artagnan was pleased that the grocer had drawn from behind the faggots a bottle of that Anjou wine, which, during all his life, had been D'Artagnan's favorite wine. "'Formerly, monsieur,' said Planchet, with a smile full of bonhomie, "'it was I who drank your wine. Now you do me the honor to drink mine.' "'And thank God, friend Planchet, I shall drink it for a long time to come, I hope, for at present I am free.' free you have leave of absence monsieur unlimited you are leaving the service said planchet stupefied yes i am resting and the king cried planchet who could not suppose it possible that the king could do without the services of such a man as d'artagnan the king will try his fortune elsewhere but we have supped well you are disposed to enjoy yourself you invite me to confide in you open your ears then they are open and planchet with a laugh more frank than cunning opened a bottle of white wine leave me my reason at least oh as to you losing your head you monsieur now my head is my own and i mean to take better care of it than ever in the first place we shall talk business how fares our money-box wonderfully well monsieur the twenty thousand livres i had of you are still employed in my trade in which they bring me nine per cent i give you seven so i gain two by you and are you still satisfied delighted have you brought me any more better than that but do you want any oh not at all everyone is willing to trust me now i am extending my business that was your intention i play the banker a little i buy goods of my needy brethren i lend money to those who are not ready for their payments without usury oh monsieur in the course of the last week i have had two meetings on the boulevards on account of the word you have just pronounced what you shall see it concerned a loan the borrower gives me in pledge some raw sugars on condition that i should sell if repayment were not made within a fixed period i lend a thousand livres he does not pay me and i sell the sugars for thirteen hundred livres he learns this and claims a hundred crowns ma foi i refused pretending that i could not sell them for more than nine hundred livres he accused me of usury i begged him to repeat that word to me behind the boulevards he was an old guard and he came and i passed your sword through his left thigh to do what a pretty sort of banker you make said d'artagnan 
for above thirteen per cent i fight replied planchet that is my character take only twelve said d'artagnan and call the rest premium and brokerage you are right monsieur but to your business ah planchet it is very long and very hard to speak do speak nevertheless d'artagnan twisted his mustache like a man embarrassed with the confidence he is about to make and mistrustful of his confidant is it an investment asked planchet why yes at good profit a capital profit for a hundred percent planchet planchet gave such a blow with his fist upon the table that the bottles bounded as if they had been frightened good heavens is that possible i think it will be more replied d'artagnan coolly but i like to lay it at the lowest the devil said planchet drawing nearer why monsieur that is magnificent can one put much money in it twenty thousand livres each planchet why that is all you have monsieur for how long a time for a month and that will give us fifty thousand livres each profit it is monstrous it is worth while to fight for such interest as that in fact i believe it will be necessary to fight not a little said d'artagnan with the same tranquillity but this time there are two of us planchet and i shall take all the blows to myself oh monsieur i will not allow that planchet you cannot be concerned in it you would be obliged to leave your business and your family the affair is not in paris then no abroad in england a speculative country that is true said planchet a country that i know well what sort of an affair monsieur without too much curiosity planchet it is a restoration of monuments yes of monuments we shall restore whitehall uh, that is important and in a month you think i shall undertake it that concerns you monsieur and when once you are engaged yes that concerns me i know what i am about nevertheless i will freely consult with you you do me great honor but i know very little about architecture planchet you are wrong you are an excellent architect quite as good as i am for the case in question thanks monsieur but your old friends of the musketeers i have been i confess tempted to speak of the thing to those gentlemen but they are all absent from their houses it is vexatious for i know none more bold or more able ah then it appears there will be an opposition and the enterprise will be disputed oh yes planchet yes i burn to know the details monsieur here they are planchet close all the doors tight yes monsieur and planchet double locked them 
that is well now draw near planchet obeyed and open the window because the noise of the passers-by and the carts will deafen all who might hear us planchet opened the window as desired and the gust of tumult which filled the chamber with cries wheels barkings and steps deafened d'artagnan himself as he had wished he then swallowed a glass of white wine and began in these terms planchet i have an idea ah monsieur i recognize you so well in that replied planchet panting with emotion end of chapter nineteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter twenty of the d'artagnan romances volume three part one by alexandre dumas translated by william robson this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the society which was formed in the Rue des Lombards at the sign of the Pion d'Or to carry out Monsieur d'Artagnan's idea. After a moment's silence, in which d'Artagnan appeared to be collecting not one idea, but all his ideas. It cannot be, my dear Planchet, said he, that you have not heard of His Majesty Charles I of England alas yes monsieur since you left france in order to assist him and that in spite of that assistance he fell and was near dragging you down in his fall exactly so i see you have a good memory planchet peste the astonishing thing would be if i could have lost that memory however bad it might have been when one has heard grimaud who you know is not given to talking relate how the head of king charles fell how you sailed the half of a night in a scuttled vessel and saw floating on the water that good monsieur mordaunt with a certain gold hafted dagger buried in his breast one is not very likely to forget such things and yet there are people who forget them planchet yes such as have not seen them or have not heard grimaud relate them well it is all the better that you recollect all that i shall only have to remind you of one thing and that is that charles i had a son without contradicting you monsieur he had two said planchet for i saw the second one in paris monsieur le duc of york one day as he was going to the palais royal and i was told that he was not the eldest son of charles i as to the eldest i have the honor of knowing him by name but not personally that is exactly the point planchet we must come to it is to this eldest son formerly called the prince of wales and who is now styled charles the second king of england a king without a kingdom monsieur replied planchet sententiously yes planchet and you may add an unfortunate prince more unfortunate than the poorest man of the people lost in the worst quarter of paris planchet made a gesture full of that sort of compassion which we grant to strangers with whom we think we can never possibly find ourselves in contact besides he did not see in this politico-sentimental operation any sign of the commercial idea of monsieur d'artagnan and it was in this idea that d'artagnan who was from habit pretty well acquainted with men and things had principally interested planchet 
I am coming to our business. This young Prince of Wales, a king without a kingdom, as you have so well said, Planchet, has interested me. I, D'Artagnan, have seen him begging assistance of Mazarin, who is a miser, and the aid of Louis, who is a child, and it appeared to me, who am acquainted with such things, that in the intelligent eye of the fallen king, in the nobility of his whole person, a nobility apparent above all his miseries, I could discern the stuff of a man and the heart of a king. Planchet tacitly approved of all this, but it did not at all, in his eyes at least, throw any light upon D'Artagnan's idea. The latter continued, This, then, is the reasoning which I made with myself. Listen attentively, Planchet, for we are coming to the conclusion. I am listening. Kings are not so thickly sown upon the earth that people can find them whenever they want them. Now, this king without a kingdom is, in my opinion, a grain of seed which will blossom in some season or other, provided a skillful, discreet, and vigorous hand sow it duly and truly, selecting soil, sky, and time. Planchet still approved by a nod of his head, which showed that he did not perfectly comprehend all that was said. "'Poor little seed of a king,' said I to myself, "'and really I was affected, Planchet, "'which leads me to think I am entering upon a foolish business. "'And that is why I wish to consult you, my friend.' Planchet colored with pleasure and pride. "'Poor little seed of a king, "'I will pick you up and cast you into good ground.' "'Good God!' said Planchet, looking earnestly at his old master, as if in doubt as to the state of his reason. "'Well, what is it?' said D'Artagnan. "'Who hurts you?' "'Me? Nothing, monsieur. You said good God. Did I?' "'I am sure you did. Can you already understand?' "'I confess, monsieur D'Artagnan, that I am afraid.' To understand? Yes. To understand that I wish to replace upon his throne this King Charles the Second, who has no throne. Is that it? Planchet made a prodigious bound in his chair. Aha! said he in evident terror. That is what you call a restoration? Yes, Planchet. Is it not the proper term for it? Oh, no doubt, no doubt. But have you reflected seriously? Upon what? Upon what is going on yonder. Where? In England. And what is that? Let us see, Planchet. In the first place, monsieur, I ask your pardon for meddling in these things which have nothing to do with my trade, but since it is an affair that you propose to me, for you are proposing an affair, are you not? A superb one, Planchet. But as it is business you propose to me, I have the right to discuss it. Discuss it, Planchet. Out of discussion is born light. Well, then, since I have monsieur's permission, I will tell him that there is yonder in the first place the Parliament. Well? next and then the army good do you see anything else 
why then the nation is that all the nation which consented to the overthrow and death of the late king the father of this one and which will not be willing to belie its acts planchet said d'artagnan you argue like a cheese the nation the nation is tired of these gentlemen who give themselves such barbarous names and who sing songs to it chanting for chanting my dear planchet i have remarked that nations prefer singing a merry chant to the plain chant remember the fronde what did they sing in those times <laughs> well those were good times not too good not too good i was near being hung in those times well but you were not no and you laid the foundation of your fortune in the midst of all those songs that is true then you have nothing to say against them well i return then to the army and parliament i say that i borrow twenty thousand livres of monsieur planchet and that i put twenty thousand livres of my own to it and with these forty thousand livres i raise an army planchet clasped his hands he saw that d'artagnan was in earnest and in good truth he believed his master had lost his senses an army ah monsieur said he with his most agreeable smile for fear of irritating the madman and rendering him furious an army how many of forty men said d'artagnan forty against forty thousand that is not enough i know very well that you monsieur d'artagnan alone are equal to a thousand men but where are we to find thirty-nine men equal to you or if we could find them who would furnish you with money to pay them not bad planchet the devil you play the courtier no monsieur i speak what i think and that is exactly why i say that in the first pitched battle you fight with your forty men i am very much afraid therefore i shall fight no pitched battles my dear planchet said the gascon laughing we have very fine examples an antiquity of skilful retreats and marches which consisted in avoiding the enemy instead of attacking them you should know that planchet you who commanded the parisians the day on which they ought to have fought against the musketeers and who so well calculated marches and countermarches that you never left the palais royal planchet could not help laughing it is plain replied he that if your forty men conceal themselves and are not unskilful they may hope not to be beaten but you propose obtaining some result do you not no doubt this then in my opinion is the plan to be proceeded upon in order quickly to replace his majesty charles the second on his throne good said planchet increasing his attention let us see your plan but in the first place it seems to me we are forgetting something what is that we have set aside the nation which prefers singing merry songs to psalms and the army which we will not fight but the parliament remains and that seldom sings nor does it fight how is it planchet 
that an intelligent man like you should take any heed of a set of brawlers who call themselves rumps and barebones the parliament does not trouble me at all planchet as soon as it ceases to trouble you monsieur let us pass on yes and arrive at the result you remember cromwell planchet i have heard a great deal of talk about him he was a rough soldier and a terrible eater moreover what do you mean by that why at one gulp he swallowed all england well planchet the evening before the day on which he swallowed england if any one had swallowed monsieur cromwell oh monsieur it is one of the axioms of mathematics that the container must be greater than the contained very well that is our fair planchet but monsieur cromwell is dead and his container is now the tomb my dear planchet i see with pleasure that you have not only become a mathematician but a philosopher monsieur in my grocery business i use much printed paper and that instructs me bravo you know then in that case for you have not learnt mathematics and philosophy without a little history that after this cromwell so great there came one who was very little yes he was named richard and he has done as you have monsieur d'artagnan he has tendered his resignation very well said very well after the great man who is dead after the little one who tendered his resignation there came a third this one is named monk he is an able general considering he has never fought a battle he is a skilful diplomatist considering that he never speaks in public and that having to say good day to a man he meditates twelve hours and ends by saying good night which makes people exclaim miracle seeing that it falls out correctly that is rather strong said planchet but i know another political man who resembles him very much monsieur mazarin you mean himself you are right planchet only monsieur de mazarin does not aspire to the throne of france and that changes everything do you see well this monsieur monk who has england ready roasted on his plate and who is already opening his mouth to swallow it this monsieur monk who says to the people of charles the second and charles the second himself nessio vos i don't understand english said planchet yes but i understand it said d'artagnan nessio vos means i do not know you this monsieur monk the most important man in england when he shall have swallowed it well asked planchet well my friend i shall go over yonder and with my forty men i shall carry him off pack him up and bring him into france where two modes of proceeding present themselves to my dazzled eyes oh and to mine too cried planchet transported with enthusiasm we will put him in a cage and show him for money well planchet that is a third plan of which i had not thought do you think it a good one yes certainly but i think mine better let us see yours then in the first place 
I shall set a ransom on him. Of how much? Peste! A fellow like that must be well worth a hundred thousand crowns. Yes, yes. You see, then, in the first place, a ransom of a hundred thousand crowns. Or else. Or else, what is much better, I deliver him up to King Charles, who, having no longer either a general or an army to fear, nor a diplomatist to trick him, will restore himself and when once restored will pay down to me the hundred thousand crowns in question that is the idea i have formed what do you say to it planchet magnificent monsieur cried planchet trembling with emotion how did you conceive that idea it came to me one morning on the banks of the loire whilst our beloved king louis the fourteenth was pretending to weep upon the hand of mademoiselle de mancini monsieur i declare the idea is sublime but ah is there a but permit me but this is a little like the skin of that fine bear you know that they were about to sell but which it was necessary to take from the back of the living bear now to take monsieur monk there will be a bit of a scuffle i should think no doubt but as I shall raise an army to—yes, yes, I understand, parbleu, a coup de man, yes, then, monsieur, you will triumph, for no one equals you in such sorts of encounters. I am certainly lucky in them, said D'Artagnan with a proud simplicity. You know that if for this affair I had my dear Athos, my brave Porthos, and my cunning Aramis, the business would be settled— but they are all lost as it appears and nobody knows where to find them i will do it then alone now do you find the business good and the investment advantageous too much so too much so how can that be because fine things never reach the expected point this is infallible planchet and the proof is that i undertake it it will be for you a tolerably pretty gain and for me a very interesting stroke it will be said such was the old age of monsieur d'artagnan and i shall hold a place in tales and even in history itself planchet i am greedy of honor monsieur cried planchet when i think that it is here in my home in the midst of my sugar my prunes and my cinnamon that this gigantic project is ripened my shop seems a palace to me beware beware planchet if the least report of this escapes there is the bastille for both of us beware my friend for this is a plot we are hatching monsieur monk is the ally of monsieur mazarin beware monsieur when a man has had the honor to belong to you he knows nothing of fear and when he has the advantage of being bound up in interest with you he holds his tongue very well that is more your affair than mine seeing that in a week i shall be in england depart monsieur depart the sooner the better is the money then ready it will be to-morrow Tomorrow you will shall receive it from my own hands. Will you have gold or silver? Gold. That is most convenient. But 
how are we going to arrange this let us see oh good lord in the simplest way possible you shall give me a receipt that is all no no said d'artagnan warmly we must preserve order in all things that is likewise my opinion but with you monsieur d'artagnan and if i should die yonder if i should be killed by a musket-ball if i should burst from drinking beer monsieur i beg you to believe that in that case i should be so much afflicted at your death that i should not think about the money thank you planchet but no matter we shall like two lawyers clerks draw up together an agreement a sort of act which may be called a deed of company willingly monsieur i know it is difficult to draw such a thing up but we can try let us try then and planchet went in search of pens ink and paper d'artagnan took the pen and wrote between monsieur d'artagnan ex-lieutenant of the king's musketeers at present residing in the rue Tiqueton, hotel de la chevrette and the sieur planchet grocer residing in the rue de lombard at the sign of the pion d'or it has been agreed as follows a company with a capital of forty thousand livres and formed for the purpose of carrying out an idea conceived by monsieur d'artagnan and the said planchet approving of it in all points will place twenty thousand livres in the hands of monsieur d'artagnan he will require neither repayment nor interest before the return of monsieur d'artagnan from a journey he is about to take into england on his part monsieur d'artagnan undertakes to find twenty thousand livres which he will join to the twenty thousand already laid down by the sieur planchet he will employ the said sum of forty thousand livres according to his judgment in an undertaking which is described below on the day when monsieur d'artagnan shall have re-established by whatever means his majesty king charles the second upon the throne of england he will pay into the hands of monsieur planchet the sum of the sum of a hundred and fifty thousand livres said planchet innocently perceiving that d'artagnan hesitated oh the devil no said d'artagnan the division cannot be made by half that would not be just and yet monsieur we each lay down half objected planchet timidly yes but listen to this clause my dear planchet and if you do not find it equitable in every respect when it is written well we can scratch it out again nevertheless as monsieur d'artagnan brings to the association besides his capital of twenty thousand livres his time his idea his industry and his skin things which he appreciates strongly particularly the last monsieur d'artagnan will keep of the three hundred thousand livres two hundred thousand livres for himself which will make his share two-thirds very well said planchet is it just asked d'artagnan perfectly just monsieur and you will be contented with a hundred thousand livres peste i think so a hundred thousand for twenty thousand and in a month understand how in a month yes i only ask one month monsieur said planchet generously i give you six weeks thank you 
replied the musketeer politely, after which the two partners reperused their deed. "'That is perfect, monsieur,' said Planchet. "'And the late monsieur Coquenard, the first husband of Madame la Baronne de Vallon, could not have done it better.' "'Do you find it so? Let us sign it, then.' And both affixed their signatures. "'In this fashion,' said D'Artagnan, "'I shall be under obligations to no one.' "'But I shall be under obligations to you,' said Planchet. "'No, for whatever store I set by a Planchet, "'I may lose my skin yonder, and you will lose all. "'Apropos, peste, that makes me think of the principal, "'an indispensable clause. "'I shall write it. "'In the case of Monsieur d'Artagnan dying in this enterprise, "'liquidation will be considered made, "'and the Sieur Planchet will give quittance from that moment "'to the shade of Monsieur d'Artagnan "'for the twenty thousand livres paid by him "'into the hands of the said company.' "'This last clause made Planchet knit his brows a little, "'but when he saw the brilliant eye, the muscular hand, "'the supple and strong back of his associate, "'he regained his courage, and without regret "'he at once added another stroke to his signature.' D'Artagnan did the same. Thus was drawn the first known company contract. Perhaps such things have been abused a little since, both in form and principle. Now, said Planchet, pouring out the last glass of Anjou wine for D'Artagnan, now go to sleep, my dear master. No, replied D'Artagnan, for the most difficult part now remains to be done, and I will think over that difficult part. Ah, said Planchet, I have such great confidence in you, Monsieur d'Artagnan, that I would not give my hundred thousand livres for ninety thousand livres down. And devil take me if I don't think you are right. Upon which d'Artagnan took a candle and went up to his bedroom. End of chapter 20. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.